This episode of Watch Out for Fireballs is brought to you by our patrons, patreon.com slash duckfeedtv, and one specific patron, friend of the show, Doug, who sponsored this episode on Atari. If you would like to sponsor an episode, head on over to patreon.com slash duckfeedtv, or if you just want to support your boys, get a bunch of uh, bonus episodes of a bunch of stuff. Anyway, uh, on to the Atari Safari. My name is Cole Ross. And you're listening to Watch Out for Fireballs. It is Games Club Podcast. And this week is a very special episode. It's one of our uh, yearly-ish special topics episodes. We're calling this the Atari Safari, uh, an episode which is executive produced by Doug Leaf. Um, yeah, Doug came up with that name. Yeah. Don't think did. that we're doing the clever work of rhyming. No, no. Regular um, rumple stilt skins over here. <laughs> yeah, it, un- Mister- it, it undoes me. Yeah. Mr. Mix. Picks dicks over here, just <laughs> fucking rhyming it up like yeah. a pair of magical goblins. Yeah, not us, not not me, not you. No, um, but yeah, no. we're talking about the Atari twenty six hundred or VCS. Um, mm-hmm. I know it as the twenty six hundred. In the notes, it's VCS. Understand that they are um, interchangeable. Yeah, and that, that's because of uh, you know it, it changed. Yes. it's both. Yeah, you know. And uh, twenty six hundred is very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the remix call it, you know, consoles and the things like that all call it that. Yes. And this is kind of our catch all Atari episode. Right. We're going to talk about um, you know our history with the Atari, a little bit about the company, um, and then a you know quite a few games. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, this is you know it's it's a whole era that we don't spend very much time in, mm-hmm. and that's why it was such a good topic for Doug to suggest. It's also an area or an era that I bet you we don't spend a, a lot more time in in the future. You pretty much, yeah. <laughs> you know, I got I got about a paragraph on each of these games, and that isn't because I didn't play them. Right, I play them a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, they're fun, but they're they're even even less so than the arcade episodes we've done. You know, and that's uh, that's kind of why this kind of overview topics, you know, uh, special course episode mm-hmm. is makes sense for this. Yes. Um. I also want to disclaim that like in the in the annals of retro video game podcast, mm-hmm. we're covering some ground that has been covered. Yes. So like most of the, the big podcasts have done something like this. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to. But if, if it's new to you, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I imagine that sometimes people some people listening to this will feel some of the same exhaustion I felt doing research, which was doing research on multiple primary sources on the same subject and just getting the same information over and over. Mm-hmm. 
You know, so like if you already you probably already know a lot of these anecdotes and stuff like that are just kind of general truths about Atari. Yeah. Um, we're going to pepper in some real good dick jokes, folks. Yeah, I don't like, I, I, like it's <laughs> just 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 know there's some there's some real good like pocket might interrupt us. Yeah, there's stuff coming. <laughs> you know, just to. We got some fireworks factories. We're going to sprinkle over it. Yeah. They're interesting stories. Yeah. Like but... it's, it's extremely fascinating. It's a fascinating story, but like I just, at some point during this, I was just like, man, I just, I know all this stuff. Yeah. You know? I, just, I feel like I, you know, starting when I was reading video game magazines in the like early to mid nineties and they were doing like a, you know, a decade, you know, decade throwback. Here it is about the Atari. Do you know what the first Easter egg is? There's exactly. a bunch of there's a bunch of stuff Doki like Doki. that. It's like fucking all four Doki Doki Bandit characters. <laughs> Every Doki Doki fact is on display here. Yeah. Um, so you know my my goal in doing research and in um, you know putting putting the notes together is to tell kind of two stories. One about what a fascinating a magical wizard who is researching Atari games. Yeah. His name was Cole. Yeah. No, there are two things outside of the outside of the game, you know, per, per game kind of thing that really stuck out to me. One, what a messed up company Atari was from sure. the beginning all the way until its end. Uh, and also, like, the limitations that were built into the system that made the games like they are. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. those are that's the big takeaway is this, yeah. you know... W- w- that second one is just like, oh yeah, this this was a nightmare. This mm-hmm. this sucked. Um, <laughs> yeah, in some ways. And it's funny the the way the company changes. It changed from one kind of unworkable nightmare to another kind of unworkable nightmare. Yeah, you know, it like just transitions the two different shitty uh, like modes to operate a business. Yeah, you know. Uh, so so we'll 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 get into it. Um, we uh, before we get into it, just uh, mm-hmm. uh, as far as Atari goes. Uh, do you ever have a, a 2600? Do you play 2600? I never had one personally. There was one in my family. My um, uh, grandma on my dad's side picked up one at a bunch of games at a garage sale to have some video mm-hmm. games at her house for when the cousins came over. Oh, the um, cousins. Yeah. You know, just we, we would gather at grandma's house or I would go and stay the night there. And yeah, she just kept the Atari 2600 uh, in all of its wood paneled glory in her sewing room. And man, I had a blast, you know, yeah. like th- this was firmly in the super Nintendo kind of era, but I was a weird young kid who liked older games, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a lot of fun putting these cartridges into the system and trying to figure them out and trying to figure out like what the new modes were without any of the manuals. Yeah, so it was modes. like it, it was like a a, a little puzzle, uh, like figuring out what the games were was a puzzle in and of itself. Uh, it, yeah. was, it was a lot of fun. I have a lot of good memories of that. Yeah, yeah. I uh, my before my parents got divorced, so I was very young. My parents got divorced when I was seven, so mm-hmm. this was uh, when I was you know five. Uh, we had an Atari twenty six hundred. Um, this is nineteen eighty five. You know, uh, born nineteen eighty, and it was the first video game I played. Um, my first exposure to a lot of these games, uh, my first exposure to a lot of like kind of gaming concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, I was extremely young and the way that my brain works and interfaces with my childhood is that I don't have like a lot of super crystal clear memories about my childhood. Right. And like trying to try wrestle in with that now as I just, you know, as I approach like absolute decrepitude, <laughs> um, as, as a, just like a aging pile of shit. Uh, the, the um, but it, it's, it's, it's weird. Like I have a couple very specific memories 
of that time uh, mm-hmm. attached to the Atari. And it's two specific games I chose for my, like, clutch of games. I'll talk about that when we get to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I didn't play Atari for a very long time. Right. Uh, my cousin had an Atari, um, but I never got one when I went and, like, I have disposable income. I'm going to get all the systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I just never happened to. I wasn't against it. Uh, yeah, I played one of those flashback consoles, which is, you know, good fun for a little bit. Yeah. And played around with some emulators. But most of my Atari experience is when I was five. Yeah. You know, so firmly in the Reagan years. And it's, a uh, you know, a uh, a weird uh, it's weird to go back mm-hmm. to it. You know, it, it was fun. I had fun. I had fun this time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that, like, if I had just been born three years earlier, then I would have the same kind of memories of Atari, like playing E.T. that I have of playing Simon's Quest. Right. You know, uh, just this infinitely long nights of, like, ensconced in mystery where one of the, one of the things about those memories I was thinking about is when was the last time in your life, Cole, that you didn't know what time it was? Um, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you, man. <laughs> right? Isn't that sad? Yeah. I know what time it is all the time. Mm-hmm. Any given moment I'm awake, I know exactly, like, within, like, about 10 minutes, yep. I know what time it is. Mm-hmm. And when I was young, you know, these ideas of, you know, this memory of staying up really late playing Simon's Quest or Dragon Quest, um, just n- having no idea. Mm-hmm. Is it 3 a.m.? Is it 11 p.m.? Is it 7 p.m.? I got no <laughs> idea. It doesn't matter. You yeah. Know? It's, it's like you're in a casino. <laughs> exactly like that's just a weird thing that i've lost yeah um and uh yeah so i would have had that with atari if uh you know my my parents had met when they were 14 instead of 17 <laughs> and got my mom pregnant so i guess i probably would not have never had you know, had that thing <laughs> parents had me very young yeah no um, I, um I, I did go back to the atari like something that you know happened roughly when i was you know 10 or so was they started releasing um kind of anthologies on the playstation yeah so like activision classics and i think it was like the atari anthology or intellivision lives all of those things like i gobbled those up I, I loved having those in addition to like the arcade stuff the namco museum um oh gosh midway classics yeah mm. So mm-hmm. that was, that was like, I mean, I have fewer fond memories of that because it's not associated with a place and a person. Um, yes. but like that, that was, that was where I got a lot of experience specifically with some of the things I'm going to talk about in this episode. Yeah. 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 Um, so the way we did this is we both, uh, took in some primary sources, um, read some books, mm-hmm. watched some documentaries. So to kind of get the history of the, uh, the organization yeah. and we both chose, uh, seven or eight games. Mm-hmm. To talk about and talk about briefly in kind of the back half of the episode. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the uh, the things uh, just – but I, I will – you know, the things that I read is I read a book called Racing the Beam mm-hmm. by uh, Nick Montfort and Ian Bogost. Mm-hmm. And then I watched documentaries. Um, I watched uh, Atari Game Over, which is the uh, documentary about the landfill, which I have a lot to say about. <laughs> um, and then a uh, History Channel documentary about the company. Uh, that I also found on YouTube. Yeah. Um, no. I, I also read Race in the Beam uh, because I, I didn't realize until after I read another book that uh, uh, Race in the Beam covered three of the games that I brought. So fun. Um, yeah. I I read um, a pretty middling history of the 2600 called Adventure, the Atari 2600 at the dawn of console gaming by Janie Lendino. Jamie mm-hmm. Lendino, sorry. 
Um, and I read uh, something that actually like provides an awful lot of color and detail that you don't get from some of the stodgier histories. Valley of Genius by Adam Fisher. It's like an oral history of Silicon Valley, which basically mm. starts with with Atari. Yeah. Um, so this is where we get um, any story that involves cocaine or weed is going to come from that. <laughs> yeah, the col- the cultural, the, the the office culture. Yeah, you know, which is uh, you know, which is it's it's interesting that it makes sense that Atari was one of the first Silicon Valley things because the like you get a beanbag instead of healthcare. Yep, <laughs> is 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 a is a trope now. Yeah, and that was the beginning of it. Like you know, you don't get royalties on this thing you made yourself, mm-hmm. but every Friday we have a kegger. Yeah, you know, and just uh, <laughs> like that kind of bullshit is firmly in the Bushnell pocket. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let's get into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's do it. Let's talk about the the, the, the origins a bit. Nolan Bushnell, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Charles Entertainment, she's himself. Yep. Uh, he was a 23-year-old carnival barker, which makes a lot of sense, and a college student when he saw Space War running on a mainframe computer. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he took this thing, you know, that was back, whenever you read about the history of video games and the first video games, mm-hmm. it's always, you know, some lab at MIT or some university that has the machine that can run it. Yes. You know, like the, the beginning of video games were nerds in their off hours at college. Right. And uh, he had this idea to take that game, uh, Space War, and put it somewhere where like outside of college, like non-academics, non-nerds mm-hmm. could play it. Where yeah. could everyone play it? Yeah. For two bits of gander. Two bits. Uh, so he worked with a guy named uh, Ted Dabney and put uh, Computer Space, um, which is his version of Space War, basically. Right, right. Um, in this Bay Area bar called the Dutch Goose. Mm-hmm. Um, he, the cabinet's beautiful. Google it. Uh, yep. Um, and uh, just that is the beginning of video games and bars. Like there had been pinball mm-hmm. in bars. This was the beginning of video games in bars. Yes. Um, and though this is often considered to be kind of a dud, especially compared to Pong, it made enough for them to make royalties from the distribution company. Nutting uh, was the yeah, company. Nutting Associates. <laughs> I, I, every single time I read that, I, I like me and the boys show up at the bar. <laughs> like me and my Nutting Associates. Uh, <laughs> like it's the biscuit crew. Like oh. let's do it. Uh, but but the royalties from Nutting. Um, uh, <laughs> that's also very good yeah like what if you got three cents per oh i know? would yeah uh i no. probably wouldn't change my habits that much you're probably not no i do it for the love of the game um yeah, exactly it's a passion project <laughs> <laughs> where's cole he's in the bathroom working on a passion project yeah he's working on a solo project in the bathroom for royalties jesus god excuse me yeah <laughs> But the ro- the royalties allowed them, uh, gave them what they needed to get Atari started in uh, 1972. Basically, Dabney and Bushnell, they you know they each put in a hundred dollars uh, in a, a living room in Sunnyvale and said, "Boom, we're a company." Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, the name Atari comes from they were they had been playing Go. Yeah, yeah. At the time, and Atari is kind of like checkmate. It's like the polite, "You're doomed." Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, and they 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 appreciated the the aggression of it. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're way into the aggression. Uh, yeah. Getting off the ground at the start was real uh, was real hairy. Uh, a because Atari didn't have any history or experience in doing this, and also banks didn't want to work in coin op business because that was mob territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty wild. Um, so their their kind of big thing that they their first gigantic huge mega breakthrough was distributing Pong. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, and this is all ethically dubious. Like, this is going to be the the watchword for this this whole episode. Like, Atari uh, yeah. is ethically dubious. Yes. Um, because they took the idea from Ralph Baer, mm-hmm. um, who and uh, it was originally designed by a guy named uh, Willie Higginbotham. <laughs> um, <laughs> of the Connecticut Higginbotham's? <laughs> yeah. The, no, yeah. of some lab in 1958. Pong was yeah, developed crazy yeah. early. <laughs> Exactly, a computer lab. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, ended up making, you know, this copy, and that was such a big part of video games yeah. early on, these direct copies, mm-hmm. um, programmed by a guy named Al Alcorn um, in one week. Man, the, 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 the story about how Bushnell played Alcorn and how that is echoed, like, literally six times through this episode, especially with the way that Steve Jobs treated Steve Wozniak by just lying and keeping all the money. Yeah. Um. Fuck, man. <laughs> but yeah, Bushnell. He had a he had a contract with Bally. Bally wanted him to make a racing game. Bushnell. He saw Pong and like, oh, I'll just make that. Um. But we need to have it done quick so we can make Bally happy and make Bally happy that we're giving them something they didn't ask for. So he brings in yeah. this new programmer, Al Alcorn, and says, "Hey, I've got a contract for General Electric, uh, and you need to have this done in one week." They basically like it's the the thing that Bushnell would do would be like, you know, find just like innocent programmers, yeah, and then dangle you know seven hundred dollars in front of them and get them to do absolute labor crimes, mm-hmm. and then these other you know people like the the Steve Wozniak Steve Jobs things is like oh for a hundred thousand dollars I'll do the worst thing in the world yeah, like at the time I mean not I'm not screwing people over for money is not new right you know it wasn't like it didn't get invented in the seventies but. <laughs> It was just, it's such a big part of the story. It's just like, I got mine, fuck you, horse shit. Yeah. You know, like, even just like, like the, the thing that stands out to me a lot, and it's from the, the later years after Bushnell, but like, <clears throat> the, you know, the founding of Activision where the, the company showed up, it's like, hey, maybe we can get a raise. Like, you, you may, we did, we did the, hey, we've been doing the math. Yeah. You made $10 billion on the six months I spent working 16 hour days. Yeah. Maybe I should get more than $20,000 in a beanbag chair. And they're like, <laughs> you, you know, Hit the the quote is you're no more important than the person who puts the, the game in the box of the assembly line. Right. What an asshole. You know, like it just everybody's just fucking greedy and horny and mm-hmm. drugged out and like shitty. Yeah. Like this is just like full of shit. <laughs> you know, like this is this is this is a story of gross people doing gross things for money generally. Yeah, and you know, people focus on the results because the result is impressive and it created so many things and led to. So many things. But uh, how about this? I think a lot of the same stuff would have happened maybe a little bit more slowly and maybe a few a few people would have gotten less money even if they mm-hmm. didn't do that stuff. Oh, yeah. Like and it <laughs> yeah. did in other in other, other places. Yes. You know, other other countries, other mm-hmm. uh, spheres and stuff, you know, like Richard Garriott didn't have to like fuck anybody over to create Ultima, you mm-hmm. know, like. He just like I'm gonna make a thing, mm-hmm. and then just like started a kitchen thing and, and made his thing. You know, there, there's there's versions of this that didn't suck, right? But it's good. There's lots of tragedy in this. Yeah. Um. So the big the big thing that Alcorn did, uh, the Pong, you know, was making this at home is is being able to use a consumer grade television right. for the display. Like yeah. you don't need this incredibly expensive computer that's doing all of this stuff. We can actually create this interface mm-hmm. that uses a TV uh, as the monitor and you know, this interface can offload, you know, some of the, the built-in programming mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing, elements. Yeah. Um, and that was the big innovation where you can hook a machine up to a TV. Right. Like, we don't need to use an expensive microcomputer and, like, program software for it. Like, we can literally just implement this game in hardware. 
Yeah. Um, so that way, really, all we're paying for is the silicon, you know, yep. as opposed to anything expensive from somebody else. And we're not getting one of these military-grade reference monitors or oscilloscopes. Right. We're just going down to Sears. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 Here. Um, Doki Doki Facts, the bar where they put this, it, it may have either been the Dutch Goose or Andy Caps. Uh, they called and said, hey, Pong, you know, your Pong machine's broken. They went in and, oh, turned out it's not broken. The coin box is full. And an empire was born. Yep. They they like literally were sending employees down with like a sack yeah. to go collect quarters. <laughs> um, you know, so yeah. um so the company grew uh incredibly fast. Yes. Um, you know, they, they ended up like having to expand their space, cutting a hole in the wall of their office to take over this neighboring <laughs> unit. Yeah. And their landlord comes by, you know, for first off, fuck landlords. The landlord yeah, comes yeah. by and says, Hey, you can't actually you can't do that. And like, yeah. well, we did it, so <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah, you just just charge us. Right. You know, the beginnings of somebody thinking they're a rock star. Uh yeah. You know? Yeah. God money is such a weird intoxicating thing that makes bad people. <laughs> <laughs> in general sense, you wave a lot of money in front of somebody, they turn into a weird werewolf like yeah. turn such a shit. Turn into a business um, monster. Yeah. Business monster, yeah. Um so they, they moved in this roller rink. Uh, people wore skates <laughs> to assemble the machines more quickly, yeah. uh, which sounds like fucking fake in Wonka town, but it's real. It's real. Yeah. 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 And apparently working there was like a, it was like a, a hippie booze and pot nightmare. It's a, it's a, it's a Flanders hell house. <laughs> 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 like, everyone's doing California cheeseburgers left and right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah it's like everybody was fucking the place smelled like pot smoke people were leaving were leaving during the middle of the day to get drunk uh they yeah. were like exploiting they would basically go down to the jails and unemployment lines and hire people that they could exploit to come in yeah yeah it's uh it's real it's real miserable it's, yeah. it's a real like it sounds real fun when you're like 20 right you know and that's how they would get people like there's mm -hmm. a quote where they talked about how uh the best recruiting project they had when they needed to recruit people was inviting somebody to a party. Right. Like they, there would be these nerds, these talented engineers, they invite them to this kegger yeah. and like there's girls here and they're talking to you and it's real fun. And maybe you don't socialize a lot um, because you, you make video games and you know, that's really similar to what cults do. It's yeah. It's got a real, you know, kind of cult energy to it Yeah. Um, in terms of, and like all cults, you know, they were, you know, these people made, you know, $20,000 a year on their mm -hmm. million dollar projects. Like, right. you know, these, these guys were making a dime while their bosses made a dollar. And mm -hmm. again, instead of getting that 90 cents, they got a uh, uh, pot haze and roller skates. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But like, man, they would, people dropped out of high school to come work there. Uh, Bushnell, just, if you liked a girl on the assembly line, boom, her name would become the code name for a new project that they were working on. Yeah. You know, somebody who was working there, here's a quote from, from, uh, Valley of Genius. He really did have that master of the universe thing. I mean, there was Coke with the assembly line girls in the hot tub. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> so, uh, yeah. And there was like a, and there was a hot tub. <laughs> so, so many hot tubs and saunas. Yeah. And not, and not like a good sex hot tub like at Sierra. <laughs> this is a drug hot tub. Yeah. <laughs> like Sierra, I think the, the, the very the very presence of Roberta Williams mm. makes the Sierra sex, you know, dungeon <laughs> seem a little bit more wholesome to a little, me. A little bit more classy. Yeah. Yeah, just a little bit more at least, you know, like less exploitive. Yeah. 
but you know it it's it, it's it's relaxing man um yeah, yeah no like just uh and then this this is the start of that hey you can wear anything kind of era yep. you know uh somebody at the company david kushner prior to atari the valley was prior to the atari to atari the valley was the era of intel and essentially men in suits with atari it became hit smelly hippies and jeans smoking weed yes which time and place whatever but like man culture culture is a thing the uh the the good takeaway from this is wear whatever you want yes <laughs> like the, like you know there, there's a nice middle ground for this that is actually mo- like worth modeling your company on yes you know wear whatever the fuck you want it's comfortable yeah. like i'll work better if i'm not you know if i'm not sweating my ass off in a wool suit exactly yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll do better work uh-huh. um so they uh they hired steve jobs and steve wozniak uh, you may know them from the popular Ashton Kutcher movie um, <laughs> to develop uh, the game Breakout on the arcade, which is my, one of my all-time favorite arcade games. That's really good. Um, Jobs, uh, you know, who is a monster as well. Mm-hmm. All of the tech people from this time are monsters. Yep. Made cool um, things, did awful things to do it. Yep. Exploited his friend, uh, played by Seth Rogen in one of the movies, <laughs> um, and lied about the amount of money they got. Yes. Yeah, basically so, had Wozniak, you know, basically Wozniak, a genius, um, yeah. you know, get the number of chips down. And there was kind of this reverse bounty program at Atari where, oh, for every number of chips that you come in below 50 or whatever, uh, you get a thousand dollar bonus. And then yeah. and then Jobs just kind of pocketed all of that to go yeah. and buy a buy fruit, <laughs> which was yeah. all that he ate. Yeah, because he's also like a psychopath weirdo. Like yeah. everybody who made the the foundations of what you care about if you're in in games or tech mm-hmm. or whatever, yeah, are all psychopath weirdos who are bad people. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost as if the foundations of our culture, <laughs> yeah, are laid by monsters on every possible axis. Yeah, the, like lit- yeah. literally the one exception to this is Wozniak. Like if you yeah. read about Wozniak, like when he got money, the thing that he did was set up a was set up like a, a phone line where people could call and hear a joke. Like he well, set up the first joke line. <laughs> he's not an exception to it because he's he's largely like he's Wozniak is not synonymous with Apple. No Steve jobs. Is, you know, yes. like yeah. there are people before those movies, like there are 1000 percent people who just don't know who he is. Yeah. yeah. You know, he's a victim. He's mm-hmm. not an exception to this. This thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So it's like, yes, just, he was responsible, but he doesn't, you know, the people who you know as being responsible. <laughs> it's like when you, 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 the buildings in the downtown in your city are named after monsters. Oh yeah. Uh, 100%. You know? Every, yeah. every building at your, uh, your, at your college was endowed by somebody with blood on their hands. But yeah. like, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that our blanket statement didn't cover Wozniak who see that he has huge uncle energy. Yeah. yeah. Seems like a fine person. Yes. Yeah, but like programming and working for Atari, you know, led to Wozniak kind of changing his thinking about home computer design and, you know, specifically working on his version of basic and making the Apple II what it was. So there's mm-hmm. that. Yep. Uh, 1975, they finally released the home version of Pong. Um, it's all hardware. There's no ROM aspect to it, um, which is really, really big. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Uh, Pong clones were huge. Yeah. Um, Atari got extremely mad at people who made these games. Um, they had copied Pong, mm-hmm. but also money, 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 money. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. And they would literally, uh, they would buy a copy of the Pong console mm-hmm. um, and then reverse engineer it by taking a copy, like a Xerox copy yeah. of the circuit board. So then they could figure out how it was put together. Right. Uh, you know, certain companies like I, I forget what it was. It was a real generic electronic company. They just like mass produced 
Pong on a chip and Tank yeah. on a chip. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And there are there are like Radio Shack Pongs and Sears Pongs mm-hmm. and Telestar Pongs and like every possible company <clears throat> had a Pong unit. Yeah. Every once in a while, I still see these in in like uh, thrift stores and antique stores. Mm-hmm. It's really neat. Like I'll yeah. be like, oh, like weird Pong clone I've never heard of. Love that. Yeah, it's it's fun. I should get one. <laughs> like. Yeah, but like so to counteract this, they had their you know Atari had their chip suppliers, their part suppliers like make fake parts that they could put on the circuit board, like mislabel them, uh, and this mm-hmm. led to a bunch of the cloners uh, going out of business. Uh, I think the first one that they bankrupted, or at least the one that was closer, uh, Atari went and had a champagne party on their front lawn as they were taking all their furniture out of the office that was foreclosed on. <laughs> Like those people had families, you fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely villainous. Jesus. Um, yeah. Uh, so they started, uh, you know, getting getting bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. which caused it to, you know, this more this poke evolves into multiple different kinds of like kind of bad companies. Yeah, yeah. And okay. again, we're talking about bad. We're being the like the pinkos that we are. Like it's you know they were still making good stuff. It's business, like, baby. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the fact that the you know. It's all it is is business doesn't go anywhere for us. Right, right. That that is the disdain that I experienced in researching this. <laughs> you know, comes from. Right. Um, but the actual product, like this, this episode is not going to be like a shit fest because the actual games are cool. Yes. Um, there are cool stories about this. There are individual people who are really talented programmers who mm-hmm. invented genres that like we make our living on. Yeah. That are worth recognizing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that business is greasy. Yes. Yeah, as a rule. And like the the a lot of the Atari story, because it is something that had this meteoric rise and this catastrophic crash mm-hmm. is about business. Yeah. Um, and you can't discuss business without discussing grease, right. getting like some grease on your hands, you know? Yeah. There like there, there are there's an ethical body count, if not a literal yes. one. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, like so the company got bigger and they're the like this dangerous combination of two things nolan bushnell he read a book basically saying oh the team that gets you to your first million can't get you your second but also bushnell couldn't fire people like he just was unable to do it so he would just backseat his original team and bring in new people and this original team was like uh i guess i'll go sit on the roof now i suppose yeah (laughs) Yeah, just hang out yeah the people get to your first million can't get to your second Oof. gross quotes yep <laughs> um so the idea to make uh the actual the 2600 vcs um the cartridge based machine mm-hmm. kind of rose from a business reason right um because once you sell the pong machine you've got the pong machine and that's it yes you know um that person doesn't need a second pong machine they, they can share with Kalen. Mm-hmm. um so until you sell a different machine you haven't made more money um, the idea of a cartridge is you can have this predictable revenue stream and the idea being that you won't reach a saturation point um, that turned out to be short sighted. There is mm-hmm. a saturation point, but it does like increase the size of that, Yeah, you know, spill it, to, to mop up or whatever. It kicks the saturation point mm, five years down the road. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they designed the, the entire system around running two popular games, um, uh, Pong and then Tank, which was an Atari game. It was not released under Atari. Nolan Bushnell started another game or another company called Key Games, basically to get out of any of his exclusivity contracts. Yeah, he he uh, joined forces with a guy <clears throat> whose last name was Keegan, mm-hmm. who had Key Games and kind of acquired it. So it was already a concern, but he's like, okay, we're going to acquire you and use this as the shell. Yes. Kind of company. He did the, uh, did the old ultra games, uh, trick with them. Yeah. Um, but like, so Pong tank, 
anything else that we can put on this thing is gravy. Turns out there was a lot of gravy. Yeah. And and uh, that Pong and Tank thing is, is really interesting. Like, I did not actually enjoy reading Racing the Beam very much. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to talk about that more. But the, the fascinating thing about, like, there being sprites that were built in mm -hmm. to the VCS. So it's not on the cartridge. You can always have a tank. Mm -hmm. You can always have a missile. <laughs> you can always have the ball from Pong. Yeah. Like, those are just kind of hardwired in is fascinating. Yes. And the way that uh, game developers would take those things and change them and stretch them and, and utilize them is... You know, the bright side of the story is one of innovation. Yeah. Uh, you know, is, is problem solving. And that stuff is always fun to read about. Absolutely. Like, you know, and that 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 part's really cool. So again, not gonna be too negative, even though we are gonna say some horrible things because uh <laughs> Kassar is showing up. Yeah. Don't turn around. Yeah, yeah. Because uh -oh. <laughs> Kassar, Ray, he's, Ray, he's he's waiting right in the wings, man. Duray Kassar's in town. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, uh, so uh, they you know sent kind of one of their little think tanks out into uh, out into the mountains. Uh, Ron Milner, Steve Mayer, and Joe DeCure, and they came up with something codenamed Stella after DeCure's uh, bicycle. So mm -hmm. you know to run some costs, like you know an Atari machine to buy it and put it into a place is well, you know was four thousand dollars, about seventeen thousand one hundred and five today as of early twenty twenty. Um, and the home machine, uh, sold for just under 200 bucks, uh, one ninety nine, which, you know, was a lot of money back then. It was $851, uh, you know, compared to, compared to today and the cartridges cost $30 or 128 today. Uh, yes. so still really expensive people today would be pretty upset if you charged $128 for a game. But compared to the four thousand, uh, the home console was a steal. Was well, a brand, you know, is basically a brand new thing. And yes, yeah. there was the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. You know, like it, it, like we know, mm -hmm. we know about the Odyssey. We're not doing an Odyssey episode. No, sorry, <laughs> that thing is really boring. Like yeah. it, it, it's, I, it's hard I, to play. I, I tried putting the overlays on my computer monitor; they wouldn't stick. So yeah, exactly. So it wasn't brand new, but mm -hmm. this level was brand new, right? You know, enough to where like in one hundred twenty dollars for for a game and even mm -hmm. if that game was you know breakout no uh was reasonable because the novelty was just absolutely apeshit yes yeah yeah um and it's weird because this is the second show uh on the network where we cover something that was bought out by warner mm. you know because rem they sold that they made that deal with warner right uh yeah. atari they didn't have the uh the capital to make the vcs themselves so they courted a buyout, you know, with with Warner, Warner Brothers. Uh, Bushnell, he made his first impression was he showed up at the meeting with the buyers in a T-shirt that said, I love to fuck. Which I actually like that shirt. Yes, I that's a good meeting, but it's a funny shirt. Yeah, I'd wear that shirt to like grocery shop. That'd be fun. Yeah, I'd wear it, I'd wear it to your mom's fucking funeral. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I don't know why I said that. I just, I just thought it was the meanest thing I could think of in the moment. Just, <laughs> it had been it'd been two seconds since we did a joke from just reading <laughs> uh you know the the history from a book so i had to put but you're i'm sure your mom's lovely um i didn't even i didn't even take that as being directed at me i, I yeah it's the listener okay yes um, i'm sure your moms are also respectively lovely yes yeah. <laughs> um so the deal wrapped in 1976 um warner ended up buying atari for 30 million mm -hmm. and uh you know the founders said like, Hey, 
let's go let's leave and make more cocaine businesses yeah <laughs> bushnell you know? bought a learjet and started a yep. charter company uh, and also yep. started chuck e cheese so fun which is pr- pretty wild like yeah. i you know chuck e cheese showbiz pizza is something i have a lot of affection for Same. yeah um you know that's that's cool mm-hmm. so um yeah. yeah. So, so Warner comes in Dirk Harmasar. <laughs> Ray Kassar. Yes. Ray, Ray, Ray Kassar. Kassar. That's a, uh, uh, the new CEO that Warner brought in, you know, to manage their new extremely expensive acquisition. Uh, Kassar, uh, was an executive from Ralph Lauren who had never played a uh, video game before. There's a quote here, like when he was asked, like, okay, so, you know, are you prepared to be a boss for like these weird creative people? He said, oh, I've got a lot of experience dealing with creative people i've worked with towel designers my entire career yeah that's a powerful statement yeah. there's a lot of energy to that statement <laughs> <laughs> my entire career what a career <laughs> a career of like, like towel designers yeah there's leaps and bounds and towel technology happening yeah. in, the, in the early yeah. 70s yeah, towel. You know, yeah, this ain't your father's towel. <laughs> um, so he kind of cracked down on this culture at Atari. Made it a little bit less hippie, but not did not actually curb the excesses. Yes. Um, this is the part in Boogie Nights where it like switches from a fun hippie thing to an eighties nightmare hippie thing. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um. So uh, yeah. we'll talk about those excesses a little bit more later. But he did change the culture there, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to some business decisions that were villainous that we'll talk about as well. Right. So uh, the VCS it was put out into a market of home consoles. Um. It, that would be really crowded uh, initially and eventually. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so it went out alongside the Fairchild Channel F, uh, which was the first cartridge based console. Uh, mm-hmm. then they had the Commodore PET 2001, the Tandy Radio Shack TRS 80, and the Apple II. Uh, some of those are microcomputers, but it was still, you know, roughly the same space. Thinking of the same space. If you haven't, Google a Commodore PET. It's like, amazing. Those are, that's, a, that's an awesome looking system. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, if you ever go to one of these retro game shows that we talk about, you know, where we, where we go. Um, don't just do it for us. Uh, we're a small part of it, but like all of them are going to have a section where you can go and look at and sometimes play with these old microcomputers. They're fucking beautiful. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful totemic objects. Aesthetics used to be better. Yes. Like imagine preferring the Xbox one (laughs) to the, to, to the Commodore pet. Right. Like, just, I don't want to meet that person. Nope. You know? Um, so uh, the VCS uh, was released as uh, as the Sears Telegames. Mm-hmm. So Sears just had a VCS they made called something different that worked the same way. Right. That they sold in their sporting goods section. Mm-hmm. Um, it had some exclusive games to it, but it was basically the same thing. Yeah. Extremely weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, because this is a new business, there are lots of weird lawsuits. I made note of two of them here. Uh, they put it out and they called it a computer. It's right in the name, but someone sued because you couldn't program it. So that led yeah. to the creation of a, a frankly unusable keyboard attachment um, mm-hmm. uh, and the release of Atari Basic, which had no way to save the programs that you put in. Uh, again, yeah. just to j- just to fulfill the settlement. Uh, they also, because uh, a chess piece was included in some of the art, uh, we should talk about the art. But because the chess piece mm. was included in some of the promo art, somebody said, oh, I want to play a chess game. Oh, there's no chess game. I'm going to sue you. And then so they made one. <laughs> the um, When you say that keyboard's unusable, it's worth extrapolating on that a little bit because someone's like, oh, what's an unusable keyboard? It wasn't like a QWERTY keyboard. No, no. It had 12 keys. Um, and the, the experience is described as like similar to typing on a phone. 
you yeah. know, or like texting on like a, a touchstone phone, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, oh, press five, three times to get to the O, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. To like make certain uh, characters show up, you had to basically cord it like a, uh, like a keyboard, like a musical yes. keyboard. Um, if you look at it, um, it looks kind of similar to the puzzle boxes from Resident Evil 2, the remake. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Those little, little blippies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but just about the art generally and the, the aesthetic presentation of it, um, man, I love the box art for pretty much any of the Atari games. Every, everything Atari looks incredible. Yes. Every single thing, all the ads, all the <laughs> arcade machines, all of the box art, um, you know, the manual art, mm-hmm. all of this is aesthetically in the pocket. Yes. The systems itself, like everything about Atari looks cool. Mm-hmm. You know, whoever, it's a weird thing that didn't show up as part of their, of any of like the histories and stuff that I, that I took in because the visual identity of this stuff is so fucking important. Yep. Like there are books about that. You can buy like the, you know, the art of Atari and it's, it's part of it's just an art book, but it also talks a little bit about the history mm-hmm. of the actual artist. And those people also show up at these retro game expos that we work out. Yeah. And so really need to see like, oh, it's the guy who, you know, drew the pitfall cover art. Like, yeah. that's cool to see. Um, but it's such a huge part of not just like an aesthetic preference, but mm-hmm. undoubtedly a big part of the success. Yeah. Like if I imagine going into a store and seeing uh, the box for the Tandy Radio Shack TRS-80 mm-hmm. versus the box for the Atari, I know which one would appeal to me as, you know, as a teen, as a kid, as a young man, mm-hmm. you know, as a young person. Like I know which one I would love. Yes. So. Yeah. Um, I, I generally don't have like, you know, game art or I have, I have lots of game art. Sorry. I generally don't have like game boxes on display in my house. I've got yeah. two. I've got the maniac mansion case, um, mm-hmm. or box, which a listener gave to me. I love it. It's up on my shelf of, of, of doodads. And I also have the, uh, the box in the game for Atari's, tw- uh, Atari's haunted house. Mm-hmm. Um, love it. Like yeah. haunted house is my favorite Atari game. I'm not going to talk about it here in this episode cause I already did an article about it. Um, but yeah, I just love the aesthetics of this. Mm-hmm. Good art. Yeah. So good art. let's talk about those, uh, those limitations, um, and kind yeah. of the architecture of this. Like there's a lot of detail that you're going to get from racing the beam. I think I liked it a little bit more than you, Gary, but like, we're not going to pretend to understand or relay all of it. It's just, it's very repetitive Yes. as a thing. Like it, it every chapter, there's a really interesting nugget mm-hmm. of like what they had to do to get things to work. There's just a little bit too much repeating things that you've already repeated and yeah. it's academic writing yes. um, explicitly like it is from an academic press and <clears throat> academic writing, you know, uh, is like regular writing, except that they make no concessions towards it being something that somebody might want to read. Right. Like, the, you know, it's just like, what if we we took this thing and we just obfuscated the language? <laughs> There's a word that, that they use in that uh, thing that I tried to look up <laughs> uh, and I can't remember the name of it and I couldn't find it. Like I huh. looked, I put it into Google and nothing popped up and I'm like. So like uh send us send us something um and i was like you're using this constantly mm-hmm. and it's not showing up in google maybe you are the problem Ian <laughs> like maybe that's the issue yeah. you know this this like affectation of like you know i don't know like academic writing affectations are annoying to me anyway yeah yeah uh in general like oh i'm i'm an m dash purist go fuck yourself like mm. i don't know like it's fine just yeah. do it but don't just shut up about it um but like yeah i just ended up finding it like pretty boring mm-hmm. with really good nuggets in each chapter yeah. and the general 
takeaway of like, hey, this was a fucking nightmare to, you know, this is the, the message of don't confuse simple products from today. Like these mm-hmm. games are very simple by today's standards with ease of use because right. this was one of the hardest things to program for. Mm-hmm. The amount of labor that went into this was absolutely immense. Yeah. The feats that people were doing to stretch this thing out of its comfort zone are incredible. That is mm-hmm. a message I can totally get behind. Yeah, I, I have I have no – basically after reading all this stuff, I have no hesitation in calling David Crane a genius. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Like uh, uh, several of these people. Yeah. You know, big genius energy. Mm-hmm. You know, guy who, guy who made uh, E.T., made Yars Revenge, uh-huh. genius. Genius. Like – you know, th- this is not using that word super lightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the biggest takeaway I got from the book. Yes. You know, and then that was, uh, you know, that's worthwhile. Good takeaway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, so like we said, uh, this, you know, the, the machine was designed for an extremely limited uh, set of games and pr- programmers had to work miracles to make that happen. Um, we should talk about some of those constraints, um, specifically uh, what makes arcade ports like perfect arcade ports impossible. Yes. Um, and all of them come down to one particular chip. It is a custom chip that they made. It's called the Television Interface Adapter or the TIA. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so everything was constrained through that. Mm-hmm. That's how, how you got the uh, machine to use the TV uh, thing that had the onboard Pong sprites and missile and such from Tank, as we mentioned. Yes. Um, there was no RAM for this and there was no video buffer. Um, because there's no video buffer, uh, and this is like where the, the, oh, the book gets technical, but mm-hmm. essentially since this worked for CRT televisions, the way that CRT televisions work, mm-hmm. um, is that they drew, they draw your images on those TVs line by line, um, top to bottom, left to right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the game is programming each thing it's going to do on the, the little, little gun that shoots light mm-hmm. programming the state of that, that light. Yes. Every so, single time. And the beam is, is going out loop. So that thus the, the title of the book, Racing the Beam, mm-hmm. like programming had to take into account um, all this bonkers shit, like mm-hmm. the refresh rate for this and the, the time in the gutter between when uh, the beam would get to the bottom of the screen and reset to go up to the top of the screen. Yeah. Uh, things like that taking advantage of the overscan space like the space that was part of the crt but was covered up by the frame of the of the the television uh to buy themselves you know a few a few more milliseconds to get another uh command out um you know a really really like literal marshall marshall McLuhan. the medium of this like actually did define the, the message what they what they could get out and it has has uh, effects that you have noticed. Like mm-hmm. if you've ever played an Atari game, you've noticed like, hey, these aren't squares. Yeah. Like these aren't pixels. Everything's a weird rectangle. Yeah. And <laughs> the reason why is a rectangle is as tall as a scan line on a TV mm-hmm. and as wide as the smallest interval mm-hmm. uh, between turning the beam on and off. Yes. Which is smaller than it is. It's, it's wider than it is tall. So yeah. thus everything is a rectangle. Yeah. There is no, there is no pixel on the Atari 2600. There is, uh, there is a, a rectangle that is the dimension of a scan line and what they call a color clock. Yes. Uh, which is ridiculous when you think about, I have to make something that looks like a little man who's running in, with that. Yeah, <laughs> like uh, as it's going. So these programmers, you know, it was different than any other kind of programming you really had to do because it was so time intensive and because everything was, you know, was pinned to this particular clock. Uh, well, and, and pinned to the clock and then also pinned again to those original games. So like yes. one of the wild things about Atari is or, or an Atari 2600 is 
that the it can only really keep track of a few different things. Mm-hmm. So a play field, um, which uh, was to be mirrored, mm-hmm. you know, like a left and right, like that was that was you needed that that saved space. Um, two player, a, a sprite for each player. Mm-hmm. Um, two missiles that they could shoot because of tank, and then a ball because of pong. Because of pong, um, that was it. Mm-hmm. So like every time you see an Atari game where more than one sprite or more than two sprites are moving on the screen that's a genius trick (laughs) that is somebody just being like how do i do this sitting down doing a lot of coke sitting in a hot tub smoking (laughs) a lot of reefer and then eventually figuring out like here's this real wild trick we can do with the interface between the time it takes this code to execute and the time it takes for the beam Mm -hmm. to come through uh to to work yeah um, so, for example, like the you know Pac-Man, which has four ghosts, mm-hmm. it doesn't they flicker. Yeah. Like at any given time, Pac-Man's on the screen all the time, mm-hmm. but only one of the ghosts. And yeah. then in between frames, it cycles between those four ghosts. Yeah. So each of those ghosts is only visible one fourth of the time. One fourth of the time, and it gives the effect of these flickery four ghosts that kind of look like shit. Like mm-hmm. you know, we'll probably briefly talk about Pac-Man because we have to talk about the crash. Yes. Um. You know. Uh. But. It, if you if you realize like oh the game was only ever supposed to have two things on the screen and now mm-hmm. there are five yeah pretty fucking wild yeah like it's it's it the constraints are just absolutely apeshit mm-hmm. on this thing yeah the the constraints that were only there and really only possible because the television technology was so dependable yeah everything was you know pinned to basically the same output. Um, you know, when we talk about the frame buffer for people who don't know, don't know what that means in comparison to this done line by line, like the frame buffer is like enough memory to hold one whole frame of what it's going to put on the screen at a time. So yeah. like it will, you know, the computer fills up the frame buffer, it, it empties the frame buffer into the display. So you see it. And while you're looking at that, it fills up the frame buffer again, like it does everything at once and then puts it out as opposed to literally changing things on the fly. Yes. Yeah. Um, just, just really out there. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, collision detection is easy. Yep. You know, uh, because, uh, you can check and see if two sprites are overlapping. It's different mm-hmm. than bounding boxes, which is how video games do it now. It's something I wrestle a lot when I was playing with Game Maker. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, and things wrap horizontally very easily right. because of the, the way that the beam moves. So going off the right edge of the screen, and then appearing on the left side was very easy. Mm-hmm. Um, doing that vertically um, is a crazy hack. Multi-screen games where if you go <laughs> off the left of the screen, you go somewhere rather than just go to the the right of the screen. That had to be invented. Was wizardry. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was made. And one of the the cool things about going back and thinking about Atari mm-hmm. is that every single thing that you take for granted mm-hmm. in video games, like somebody had to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so like it, it wasn't necessarily Atari for all these things, but like. Things like, oh, um, you know, a character should have three lives. Yeah. Somebody made that choice. Mm-hmm. Like it was it was ma- it didn't just come with the universe. Like the idea that like when you leave the edge of a screen, you go somewhere else mm-hmm. did not come with the universe. Right. Like someone made that decision to imagine a bigger play field outside of the screen. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge leap of imagination if you don't have, you know, if you don't have the assumptions that we're built with yes. from a lifetime of consuming media. Mm-hmm. It's to be respected. Yes, quite so. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we talked about everything else being a hack. Um, and it's pretty important to say that, you know, this is because of CRT technology. Like LCDs mm-hmm. are not kind 
uh, to Atari, not just because of the way that they work, but like the games looked better back then. Like if yeah. you play an Atari game on a CRT, especially an old crappy one, what to you today appears to be, you know, a really blocky sunset actually has a certain amount of bleed and sloppiness that makes it look less artificial. Well, not, not only just because of the blockiness, but also things like that trick with the ghost, yes. right? Like yeah. the, uh, the phosphors on a CRTV, uh, CRT TV fade quicker mm-hmm. or fade slower rather than yes. an LCD TV. So like the ghost would appear only one fourth of the time and it would take a lot longer to fade mm-hmm. than it would on a modern TV. So it wouldn't look as flickery, right? Like you could see something was going on, but maybe you'd be like, Oh, it's a ghost. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what they do. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it just, in every aspect things looked better. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, another limitation was cartridge ROM. Um, mm-hmm. Memory was incredibly expensive, and the TIA could only address 4K, um, basically four kilobytes um, uh, in cartridges out of the box. Uh, bigger games later would use a hack called bank switching, which basically like, oh, we're going to put multiple 4K chips inside the cartridges, and the computer will like reference from a bunch of them. Picture like, oh, multiple discs, multiple CDs, except they're yeah. all loaded at once. They're all on the same cartridge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so since most of the kind of memory cycles of a cartridge uh, are based on getting images to the screen because they had to do this beam racing mm-hmm. nonsense and take all this stuff into account, um, one player games were also an innovation. Yep. Um, having some kind of AI. Yeah. Tank, you know, Tank and Pong, uh, those were two player games. Like this, yes. the Atari VCS came with two joysticks. And two paddle controllers, you know, because it was assumed that you were going to be playing it with somebody else, almost like a board game. You know, that was the model that was, you know, that the Odyssey did, right? Yeah. Well, because the idea of playing a game at home <laughs> by yourself wasn't a thing. Right. Like, all games were basically that. Like, from, from D&D do checkers, like, mm-hmm. games were something you did with somebody else. Yes. You know, the arcade and pinball were kind of early games you played by yourself. But playing a game by yourself at home, yeah. you know, I'm sure there were, like, exceptions. And there were, like, handheld games are really big. Sometimes a little like LCD football, things like that that you play by yourself. But doing that, uh, you know, on your TV was a brand new idea. Yes, your TV, which was part of the social hub of your house. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Like, it's real cool to read about what they did to build Robot Pong in Video Olympics. Uh, I forget. Was that in Race in the Beam where they just where they describe like, okay, getting it to play perfectly is easy. Getting it to make mistakes is hard. Yeah, that that was in Racing the Beam. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know that being a major innovation of of video games, like the where where entertainment comes from is the the idea that you could win mm-hmm. and making something make mistakes. Um, they basically there's a, a tic tac toe program mm-hmm. that was the first one that that did it. Yeah. Um, where like it could play perfect tic tac toe, but you could actually tune it to make a mistake every certain number of moves. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, creating the illusion of humanity. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And that that's the, the the birth of AI basically. Yeah. You know, is is uh planned mistakes. <laughs> yeah. So uh we should talk about the controllers just a little bit. We mentioned the 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 joystick and the paddle. Uh, the huge thing is that they're replaceable. Like they are not part of the main console them, you know, themselves. They're not uh, wired into it. You can unplug and replug, which means you could, you know, feasibly get new ones or replace broken ones, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a hard time with these Same. now. 
I, I do not like the Atari uh, controller. Man, like it, it, it is a two-handed. Uh, it, it's it's not really a joystick. You have to hold on yeah. to the you have to hold on to the base harder than you than you uh, you know move the stick on the top. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a real ergonomic nightmare. Yeah, and I, I also feel similar. Like the paddles work a little bit better. Yeah, uh, yeah. for me, but also I I still don't love them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is, again, just doki doki facts that pop in. Uh, Sega Genesis controller will work on an Atari part yep. port. So throw in a Sega Genesis controller on your Atari yes. and play with the Genesis controller. Yeah. Um, um, another huge thing, the switches on the console. Like those yeah. were part of this riot chip or whatever. But like, you, you know, you had difficulty and you had these different modes that you could you could select. And games in, your, in their manuals, they would have these huge matrices that explained what different combinations of these did. Yes. Um, and you could modify a game, you know, pretty drastically. So it wasn't just, you know, one thing. There were, you know, either minor variations, there were different difficulties, uh, you know, different rules, like different behaviors for uh, projectiles um, that were kind of coded in. So Something the, that would be done through a menu today. Yes. You know, we're actually done through the hardware on the system. And what's interesting is that these switches were not mapped to those things natively. Like mm-hmm. the programmers decided what these switches did. Yeah. So later, very ambitious games would use these switches as like part of like flight simulator controls. That, that Things o- like that. That overlay for the space shuttle simulator is so yeah. good. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. Um, again, just like ridiculous amounts of like, why, why wouldn't we do that? Yeah. You know, just questioning your assumptions. Yeah. Um, uh, you know that, that comes with that or even just like messing with things like um you know the raiders of the lost of the lost art game you know the player one joystick was for moving your dude around um and the player two joystick was for like messing with your inventory yeah um really, a, really interesting <laughs> uh even though it does make them extremely obtuse today yes, yeah. like game modes as a thing that is not intuitive to a to a game player today mm-hmm. um is one of the the biggest hurdles for an atari like the the games themselves are actually pretty simple yeah the idea of referencing this rule set and doing a series of switches to to apply it is very alien to me mm-hmm. um and a lot of the variations like are pretty different a lot of them are also really seamy <laughs> right and the way the lack of feedback on what mode you're on mm-hmm. like a lot of times they're just like change colors of the backdrop yeah you know so like it is it is a system where you need that reference material to to make full use you need the manual and the manuals are good at least on yeah, yeah. the big publisher atari games yeah yeah fun stuff um there's not really atari music nope i've been struggling to decide what i'm going to use <laughs> this episode like probably just you know the pitfall jingle or the pac-man jingle <laughs> or something yeah um because it had this very limited uh kind of square waves and a noise track um basically almost everyone just used it for sound effects mm-hmm. um and uh and then it's you know at some point um and a lot of the tones it could make did not correspond to the western scale no no, like there were like five, five identifiable notes that it could make. And Gary Kitchen, he just mapped those out and said, all right, we've got, we've got an A, a C sharp, whatever. And he went to a jingle writer and said, hey, can you make me something with this? Yeah. And they made cool, like kind of cool stuff. Yeah. So again, just very impressive and feels like it's breaking the rules, you know, uh, even though it ends up being incredibly primitive. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's talk about games. Let's do it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so uh, I played. Uh, we're gonna do the, some of these. We're gonna do multiple ones in a row because we have these chronologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the first game I want to talk about uh, these, and some of these are also ports. Like I, um, several of these are ports, either of Atari games or other things. Like I tried to choose things based on affection that I had. Yeah. 
like a mix of affection and reputation, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so the first one I want to talk about was Breakout, uh, which came out in, uh, the, in the arcade in 1976. Uh, this was made by, uh, you know, uh, Wozniak, mm -hmm. as we mentioned before, um, and then was ported to the 2600 in 1978 by Brad Stewart. Right. Um, and Breakout is kind of a single-player racquetball game, if you've never played it. Um, mm -hmm. This is the game where you have the pad at the bottom of the screen. You're knocking a ball up against rows of colored bricks, um, which disappear after being hit a certain number of times. Mm -hmm. And your job is to clear the bricks um, until they're gone yeah. and go to the next stage. Um, it is This is my favorite uh, dial game. Yeah. You know, like if a game, this, this is where that feels good to me. Mm-hmm um using the dial and i think this game is just like a really fun arcade you know in the the weird the baked into our dna arcade games yeah i think this is really fun mm -hmm. the uh like the important thing about a breakout style game i mean uh, like yeah i just i prefer arkanoid or whatever like but it's interesting and notable that the, the important thing about a breakout style game where you get through and the ball just bounces around at the top of the screen yes before it comes back that that is still there like that is just this elemental unit of triumph when that happens yeah. uh, immensely satisfying um very dramatic mm -hmm. you know because you don't know exactly when the ball is going to fly back at you mm -hmm. and what angle um so different modes on this allowed you to kind of put different amounts of like english you know on the ball or being able to hold the ball mm -hmm. things like that so there are different ways to do it um the port itself so that's that's breakout in general um i have my my notes kind of organized in these sections and one of them is like how's the port if it's you know, how is this at playing on the 2600 mm -hmm. and pretty good, you know, it's like mm -hmm. the colors are very bright. It's pretty, um, it's really playable. It's not, it is a downgrade. Almost all these will be downgrades Yes, when they're ports, obviously. Um, but you can have a really good time with 2600 breakout. Mm -hmm. Um, I played for a long time. Yeah. Uh, this game. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> like yeah. it, feel, it feels weird. It's almost like saying, Oh, space invaders. Yeah. It's good. It's fun. Yeah. Play it. Yep. Um, super good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like this more than I like space invaders. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I'm hit, definitely hitting the ones that are, that are my, yeah. my good old games. Yeah. You know, basically, um, the next one, you know, chronologically is also, uh, on my list. And this mm -hmm. is something that I think a lot of people played. Uh, this is my representative from David Crane. Mm -hmm. Um, I chose outlaw, um, which, uh, was in the arcade 1976, uh, 2600, 1976 again. Mm -hmm. Um, outlaw is amazing. Um, this is a really fun game. Mm -hmm. Uh, you play as two, uh, cow pokes on either side of, <laughs> I love I'm, the cowboy sprites so much, Gary. They're, they're really fun. They're really good. And they're like animated in a fun way. Uh -huh. They like, when you shoot, you take a knee in this like really charming little way. Um, and you, uh, you try to shoot each other around these obstacles. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just a dueling game, but there's these con like strategic considerations, mm -hmm. uh, that you might not expect. So like. When your bullet is in the air, you cannot move. Mm -hmm. So once you've shot, you've really committed to it. Yes. If the other person is not shot, they can still dodge the thing. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is a really elegant in 1978 <laughs> way to emulate the like the quick draw. Like yeah, the showdown. Yeah, you know, the showdown. Like who's who's going to flinch first? Like if mm -hmm. you if you jump the gun, if you shoot before the other person does, and they psych you out. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to. You can dodge. Mm -hmm pretty easily um there's a lot of just elegance to this your sprites are very tall and if you get tagged anywhere it's a point mm -hmm. um so you need quite a bit of like run to dodge a bullet yeah uh and then there are the variations which are just incredible like there's um you can in the basic version you can shoot forward you can also bank shots off the roof or floor mm -hmm. 
which is incredibly cool. Uh, you know, as like a surprise thing. And then you can do things where you can tunnel through the object <laughs> in the middle. Um, there's a variant there. There's a variant uh, where instead of one object in the middle, it's an endless scrolling series of wagons. It's a nightmare. <laughs> it's, it looks really, really hard Like to do that timing, though, and do this kind of like ballistics X versus sever, like <laughs> looking, you know, looking through the panels of a train going by yeah. trying to shoot each other. Um, and then there's a mode also where you get six shots, and if you run out of bullets, you have to dodge until your opponent runs out of bullets before you can both reload. So many just great variants. I love this game. <laughs> yeah, this game is awesome. I want to stream it at Duckstream next year. That's a good, good like, idea. Yeah. Like, this game is incredibly fun. Mm-hmm. Like, Outlaw is super, super cool. I only ended up playing the target mode because I was playing one player, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I was wasn't playing an Atari 2600 I was saying at my computer mm-hmm. but uh I could just like I watched a lot of two player and I played this two player as a kid like yeah, all these games yeah. are games I have experience with and it is remarkably super fun yeah so outlaw owns bones and uh, David <laughs> Crane is awesome yes love it so. uh going to go on to mine moving to 1979 with adventure uh, I figured <laughs> I'd I'd jump on this grenade cuz it had to be talked about <laughs> so this was progr- yep. programmed uh by warren robinette um uh the, the release date's a little bit weird so some say 1980 some some say 1979 blah uh mm-hmm. but uh this is like a precursor to role-playing like action role-playing games you play as this small square uh, it's actually the ball sprite uh it's not really a character it's like a cursor uh, so yeah, like, that's how he considers it. yeah fill, yeah, fill, fill yourself in here um, and you navigate these, you know, really simple mazes, uh, to get into a number of castles with the ultimate goal being to like get the sacred chalice and bring it back to your home castle. Um, mm-hmm. and you have these, uh, dragons that are after you, uh, called Yorkle and Grindle, which are amazing names for dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got to pick up a sword to, uh, to slay them. Uh, and in certain modes of the game, you've got these bats that come by to steal it, to steal an item that you're carrying and swap it out with something else just from the memory. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. possibly a dragon fucking you over. That happened to me more times than I care to admit while I was playing this. Yeah, it's real. It's a real frustrating game, actually. Yeah, I, I don't find, find this game fun at all. No, like this, this is an important game, but I don't really find it playable. <laughs> No. Uh, today and i i don't uh you know that doesn't mean it's bad like right. if, if i had played it when i first came out i probably would have like lost my mind you know and, and just thought about how cool it was and it invented you know we talked about these things mm-hmm. like it invented going to the edge of the screen and that bring you to a new location yeah that was more robinette yeah yeah like and he he made that like he, he he designed that technology even though super you know so superman uh the you know Atari game came out and did that before adventure, but that was actually, it was using Robinette's code from making adventure. Like Atari mm-hmm. wanted him, water wanted him to get off of this adventure project and work on the license game. And he's like, no, here's this other guy, but use my work. I need to do my thing over here. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so very impressive mm-hmm. uh, at the very least. It also, in addition to being the first game that had, uh, you know, that expanded space, mm-hmm. it also was the first game to play with that and make that space non-logical. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, uh... which it was not like necessarily for intent. Like, I don't feel right. like that was like them trying to do some house of leave shit. I think mm-hmm. that was, you know, on accident, basically. Yeah, it just, just the, the, the way that the, the way that the memory worked. But yeah. yeah, like, you know, if you're not playing with uh, a map that explains what those connections are, it feels like some real deadly castles or deadly towers uh kind of stuff uh yeah. going on um like you are slaying dragons but the combat is super goofy like 
you know, where you pick up the sword matters, like which side of your square it's on. So like if the enemy, if the dragon is coming at you from the right and the sword is stuck to your left-hand side, you have to drop it and get around to the other side to pick it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a bunch yeah. of stuff like that. Um, you know, that makes it, that makes it too, too primitive to play. And something that happened with, with a lot of the, the other games that I ended up picking is like, oh, like, yeah, this is pretty primitive, but there's parts of this that feel, that feel very modern. The, the stuff that's modern about this was, I think, so foundational that it's just things that even in its first iteration, it's hard not to take for granted. Yeah. 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 It invented, you know, it's, it's the reason we have Zelda. Yes. You know, uh, so that is worthwhile. Mm hmm. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's not, I don't think it's a fun game. Right. Um, it's worth saying some Doki Doki facts about this. Uh, it, it is an ad- adaptation of Colossal Cave Adventure, which was a text adventure. Robinette's like, oh, I bet I could do that in non-text. Uh, mm-hmm. It is not the same at all. <laughs> it's really no, because, you know, his idea was like, well, I'll have images represent the things you find. Right. But like, I don't know, like a text will describe something and then you'll get a better, you know. Yeah brain image one of one of the ways that racing the beam let me down is everyone and this is an ian bogus thing right so like in this chapter on adventure which is really interesting yeah tons of great facts and then he's like this is the first you know as opposed to colossal cave adventure where you're moving to a space here you're moving through it (sighs) and like yes that is a a a differentiation you don't need to spend several pages on that it's not as profound as you think it is right right you know it's like it's yeah. a, a distinction without a difference or a yes. difference without a distinction. Yeah. Like you're moving through a space in Pac-Man as well. Like yeah. you've already moved through a space. The difference, you know, it, that does make it different than Colossal Cave Adventure. Mm-hmm. But you're you're just spending too many words on that, my, my friend. My dude. Yeah. And also like he just kind of like takes a shit on text adventure as a thing of the past, even though the best text, text adventures were still to come out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of weird. Like there, there's some weird kind of biases in that book Yeah. Um, for, for technical innovation. You know, yeah. it's, it's his, his like career thing, which is like breaking video games down to absolutely their smallest units mm-hmm. that they can be broken down, which is not unnoteworthy. Like that guy's taken a bit of a beating recently because he's had some bad headlines. Yeah. Um, but he's not an idiot. Right. He's just very specific in like what he likes to, the way he wants to approach games. Right. You know, and that kind of that really comes through in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So there's another game uh, that they also uh, made. Uh. Mm-hmm. With uh, this game actually came after Superman. So Superman also had these multiple screens yeah. to explore, yeah. but that was side scrolling and was worse. Mm-hmm. Nobody liked that. That was the first uh, licensed game, yes. I believe. The, the first, Superman, yeah. the, the first officially licensed game. Yes. Because um, there was like, that fake Jaws. Yes. That Atari made. <laughs> God, that is the most Nolan Bushnell thing. I, I, no. I my jaw dropped. No, yeah, pun, pun not jaws, intended. Shark. <laughs> like, they pulled some, uh, some OJ Simpson, if I did it shit on that, on yeah. that poster. Yep. 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 Uh, but yeah, first officially licensed game had come mm-hmm. from, uh, from this as well. Yes. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the, so people say that, uh, adventure was the first, uh, the first Easter egg. Uh, pro- probably not the case. Uh, earlier than this, on a Fairchild Channel F game, uh, 1978, uh, there was a programmer who put his own name in a game called Video Cart 20 Video Whizball. Fucking titles, man. Yeah, yeah. Video Whizball. <laughs> but like the thing that's that stuck out to me, and I didn't know the particulars of this. You know, Warren Robinette um, put his name in there because programmers didn't get credit for Atari games. Uh, additionally, 
uh, Adventure sold over a million copies at twenty five million a piece. I can't do the math, but it's a Not lot of money. Twenty five million a piece. Oh, sorry. Whoops. <laughs> I, in doing the joke, yeah. I said the wrong this, thing. This is a very expensive game, yes. folks. Like, listen, <laughs> when you go to the edge of the screen, it actually takes you to a new place. It doesn't just loop around. <laughs> yeah, we cannot we cannot overestimate how valuable that is. <laughs> yeah. A million copies at twenty five dollars a piece, whereas Robinette was pulling in a salary of twenty two thousand dollars at the time. That was a lot of money back then but uh i don't know i would probably take the royalty at the 25 million over yeah those. we'll talk about the royal the royalty yeah when we get to, when, b- before we activision. do yeah do our activision game no yeah but yeah that's that's a bummer yeah you know it's also worth noting again and we, we didn't really talk about this but all these games were made by basic like actually all the ones i think we're talking about were made by one person yes so one person would do every aspect of the game mm-hmm. like they would design the manual they would do the graphics they would do the sound they would do the programming they would do mm-hmm. everything other than like put it on a chip physically right so when we say this was made by Warren Robinette it was made by Warren Robinette we're not there's no auteur problems like we have now right you know where it's like what parts of MGS5 were Kojima responsible for what parts were other people responsible for mm-hmm. or like the guy who co-wrote Metal Gear Solid 1 right you know what makes it a little bit more grounded there's none of that obfuscation mm-hmm. going on this was Warren Robinette yeah no. Um, yeah. Uh, so the uh, the next game that I have uh, is Missile Command, um, original 1980, uh, made by Dave Thurier, uh, and then ported 2681 uh, mm-hmm. by Rob Fulop. Um, and this was something I chose because I played it a lot as a kid. It's fun. I, um, yeah, and it's it's an Atari game. It still counts the 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 topic, even if it's not the 2600 version. That's the best version. Mm-hmm. Um, so you control uh, these miss, you know, the these six cities at the bottom of the screen. Projectiles are coming in a line from the sky, and the game is basically about managing um, the timing of your explosion radiuses mm-hmm. and the arc. Uh, so the uh, your your missiles will explode, and if any part of that explosion hits the front of the uh, projectile, the front of the the line, uh, you'll destroy it. Yeah, and they're going for your cities, and you uh, need to save your cities. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a weird Cold War style game. Um, initially, the developer, when they made it, uh, the six cities were based on six cities in California, mm-hmm. um, and they had nightmares during development about those cities being destroyed. As one would like, <laughs> in nuclear war. Um, you know, uh, Atari changed it to be about an alien war, mm-hmm. you know, an alien planet, um, just to kind of sanitize it. Yeah. Um, and uh, this game uh, is exceedingly fun. Um, you know, I not, like I'm not trying to contrast myself at all, but I, I did try to pick things that I thought like I already knew were fun mm-hmm. just because I was like, ah, you know, and you fell on the adventure. grenade. The, the, I think that's that the only one of these really that I fun. think is not fun. Uh, yeah. All of the other ones that I picked, even though, even if they are, you know, kind of bigger, like or more obligatory. I, I like them quite a bit. But one, one of the, the goals that I had for this episode, other than just doing, uh, you know, history mm-hmm. stuff was to like find the fun in this. Mm hmm. Because the idea that these games could stand up or still be, you know, worth critical evaluation as a game, as yeah. an experience, was something that I wanted to believe in mm-hmm. and generally came came back, you know, feeling good about. Yes. Um, you know, this is really cool. Like the the thing that struck me about Missile Command on revisiting it uh, is that it has a really interesting kind of take on like a gradual lose state. Mm-hmm. The idea that you have six lives and you save them for the entire game and your efficacy is lessened as you lose lives. Like you are, 
you know, you are less effective the worse you do. Mm -hmm. But if you're playing very well, you can keep those going and be very strong in the end game, as opposed to something like you get three chances with a Pac-Man or you get one chance with like a lot of these games. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a really interesting kind of way to manage your, your remaining play while also juggling plates you know, that are these projectiles coming down and doing a lot of kind of micro calculations. Yeah. Like this is where this will explode. I have internalized how long my missile will take to get there. Uh, this is how big my blast radius is. I can catch two of these projectiles with one, mm-hmm. you know, if I do this. Yes. Um, really good. Extremely fun. And the port is also really fun. Yeah. Um, it's a little easier. Mm-hmm. It's a little uglier. Um, it sounds like shit. The, uh, <laughs> the, the audio component of it is garbage. Yeah. Um, but it is still an extremely fun version of really, really good game missile command. Yeah. It has the thing, you know, the two things that I feel are important, which is internalizing the getting a dead reckon on how fast your missiles move and where they will explode and how big their explosion will be. Like that's a huge part of it. And then mm-hmm. the kind of inevitability of losing. Uh, is real is real important in missile command i think you know it's not um an original point i I, I, it was probably mentioned in one of the books that i read but like most arcade games you don't win you just you know see how long it goes until you lose that is really resonant with missile command if you look at it as like a piece of like political art yeah 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 yeah. um yeah so if you see a missile command play it play missile command God, I, yeah. I actually prefer the uh, atari version as well because i like it i like it without the trackball oh i love the trackball i was about to gush about trackball games i don't like trackball games no? i think i think that we i think this uh this difference has come up before they yes. hurt my hand oh uh-huh. um and i find them a little too slidey i'm not as precise with a trackball hmm. as i am with a joystick yeah, you know? yeah different so. preferences uh, i like the way they feel I like, I like pushing them real fast in one direction and going wee well, that, that, I, I agree with that. I think that's <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't. You're not a monster. That my cities, Cole. <laughs> People in California can't survive on Wii after they're living in bombed out husks. God, I remember like go, walking through a, a Sun Electronics and seeing like in their computer area where they had a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of you know basically PC like Windows Windows ninety five ports of classic Atari games. And mm-hmm. playing the Windows version of this where you were just clicking with a mouse. Is there anything that feels as pointless as that? Yeah, <laughs> playing I Missile know. Command with a mouse. <laughs> like, it's, uh, it's pretty easy. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> so, uh, um, so I'm about to talk about uh, the first Activision game. And it makes sense mm-hmm. to uh, talk, about the, talk about the founding of Activision here. It's a longer story than what we're going to tell, but we're going to hit the important parts of this. Uh, But Mm -hmm. in 1982, four of Atari's best programmers, they saw a profit breakdown. Like it was basically distributed. Uh, Whoever decided, hey, let's show everybody these numbers probably didn't think about how shitty that would be. Yeah. Um, But they saw like, oh, we're responsible responsible for $200 million in sales while each of us is pulling in about $22,000 a pop. Again, that was a lot of money at the time, but they were creating a lot more value than was, you know, being given back to them. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and they were also not only not getting compensation, but it was also about recognition. Yes. Cause your name did not show up and that was a rule. So there are no credits on Atari games. Uh, your name does not show up in, in the title screen or the box or anything like that. Right. Um, you do not get recognition. Everything is just by Atari as a monolith, even though, you know, weirdly that's more true of games now where you have these huge studios. Yes. 
like a game is by Obsidian, even if Chris Avalone writes it, mm-hmm. it's still like a lot of people had it here when it was just like, hey, this is, you know, Gary Kitchen. That was Gary Kitchen. Yep. <laughs> like he did the whole fucking thing, you know, yeah. so it was even more unjust mm-hmm. that they did not have that. Um, so they went and uh, talked to Ray Kassar, Dirk Harmasar, mm-hmm. and about royalties. And that's when he had that quote where he's like, the programmers are no more important than the people who assembled the cartridges now at the plant. And they did the only reasonable thing to do in that situation is say go fuck yourself yep we're out <laughs> uh and went and made activision mm-hmm. uh, yeah. a company you probably have heard of yeah uh, Who, yeah. which used to be you know synonymous with quality <laughs> and then got less so yeah you know uh but yeah it was david crane larry kaplan alan miller bob whitehead they uh basically hooked up with a guy named jim levy who was basically looking to break into publishing and they started activision uh, which was the first third party console developer that like within a year, like passed Atari as the fastest growing company in America. They were mm-hmm. wildly successful uh, because their games were really good. Yes, they they were. You know, they did this for quality. Mm-hmm. You know, it was about the art, not the business. <laughs> uh, if you make if you make good art, business will follow. Yes. You know, I want to believe that. Um, and they actually ended up helping Atari quite a bit as well because, yeah. you know, fire that, Lit a fire under their ass, and also you got to buy an Atari system yep. to play the you know to play Pitfall. So like, of course they're gonna, you know, uh, it's gonna it's gonna help everybody. Rising mm-hmm. tide raises all ships. Yes. Um, their big advantage was the fact that they were ex Atari uh, meant that they didn't have to like reverse engineer the Atari. Every other third party developer that came about, and some of which were actually pretty successful, mm-hmm. um, they had to figure out how to program for Atari, which, as uh, Racing the Beam tells us uh, at length, is an absolute fucking nightmare. Yes. So they already knew how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there were other third parties. You know, this would become a problem uh, for Atari and the business in general. Uh, but, you know, former Atari programmers broke off a little bit after the Activision people had made uh, iMagic. Uh, you will recognize an iMagic uh, cartridge because it looks like a space artifact. It's mm-hmm. got this kind of like weird trapezoidal shape. Um, yep. It's not boxy. Uh, the most popular one is Demon Attack. That's one I almost covered for this, but I played it and I was like, yeah, this is really good and the art's impressive, but I don't have an awful lot to say about a vertical shooter. It's super shooter. basic, but yeah. it's fun. Yeah. Like Demon Attack is cool, but there's there's not a lot to it. Right. Pretty basic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something you will always recognize an Activision um, game because of the box art or the cartridge art. Uh, most of the characters have these uh, rainbows. Uh, extending behind them to indicate the movement. Um, I fucking love that aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's really good. It's a good choice. They uh, also the Activision logo shows up on the game screen. Yes, when you're playing, you are constantly reminded that you are playing an Activision game. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first Activision game I'm going to talk about here uh, is one of my favorites for the system. Uh, this is Kaboom, which was released in uh, 1981. Uh, this is programmed by Carla uh, Maninsky. Who did mm-hmm. uh, who did Dodgem and Warlords uh, at Atari? Uh, Warlords is really cool. That's a mm-hmm. an interesting ass game, um, but uh, it's you know it's kind of weird to look back at this. And at least two of my games were primarily developed by women. Like that was a thing that happened. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah, and still sometimes now. <laughs> um, Occasionally. Yeah occasionally yeah um uh, uh but yeah kaboom uh this is it's a clone of an atari game called avalanche uh you're controlling these buckets of water at the bottom of the screen and you have to catch these bombs that are dropped from the mad bomber uh who moves left and right at the top of the screen this is a paddle game 
uh, it was a nightmare to play in any other form, like in the Activision classics, because just a D-pad does not give you the precision that you need to keep up with this, because this is a very, very fast game. Um, yeah. You have like just I associate in my head the Atari with really awkward and slow controls, you know, yes. just stuff stuff just doesn't move very fast. And both Kaboom and another game I'm going to talk about later, uh, River Raid, uh, absolutely buck that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as you are moving to catch these bombs, they, you know, the mad bomber moves more quickly. You have to span more, um, you have to span more distance in between them, uh, and also drops them more frequently. So this is a real, a, re a real demanding pattern matching game, uh, that is really satisfying to play when you nail it. And it has a little bit of that, you know, missile plates, poor get poorer kind of thing that is pretty engaging because you start with these three buckets. And if you lose one of the buckets goes away, which means you have less surface area, uh, to grab the, uh, to, to grab the bombs with. Yeah. 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 yeah this game is fun as hell. I love it. It's so like, good. Kaboom is really fun. I mean, this is, you know, uh, an arcade, you know, a non-ambitious Atari game basically kind of tops out as something you'd want as a mini game in a, in a modern game almost. Yes. You know, and this would be awesome as such. Yes. Like this is, this is a WarioWare level. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure there are WarioWare levels that are basically kaboom. Yes. Um, and that is, or like a game and watch mm -hmm. game almost as well. Like th this kind of like extremely simple. One of the things about Atari games that I found in doing this revisit is like, it's not like any of them are something I'm going to sit down and like marathon sesh. <laughs> right. You know, the, these, these are games that you play for, and we'll talk about when we talk about pitfall, mm -hmm. which kind of changed this, but the, you play them with an arcade rhythm, yep. which means you play kaboom the same amount of time you might sidle up to a space invaders machine in an arcade. Yeah. Um, but that's still cool. Mm -hmm. So you still have fun at a space invaders machine in an arcade. Yeah. And that's kind of how I feel about kaboom. Same. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good. You know, uh, to do research on this, I got one of those Atari flashback uh, systems that actually mm -hmm. came with a paddle controller. And I was like, fuck, yeah, oh, I can play right. Kaboom. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's I, can, cool. I can play Kaboom without, uh, you know, uh, without losing my mind uh, at yeah. a D-pad or a computer. So, yeah, I, really cool. I'm really happy that I have that. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, the next one uh, that I'm talking about is Berserk. Mm hmm. Uh, original in 1980 uh, from Stern Electronics, made by Alan McNeil. 2600 version came out in 1982. I could not find who did the port yeah. of Berserk. Um, but I chose this because it is one of my favorite old arcade games. Mm -hmm. um, it is kind of, it's not a dual stick shooter, but it feels a little bit like a proto. It would inspire, it would inspire Robotron. Yeah, inspire Robotron. Um, and uh, this is, you navigate this maze. Um, you know, you cannot hit the wall and you have robots that will fight you until evil auto this smiling face that talks to you mm -hmm. chases you down. Um, you can uh, either stay and kill robots for points, or you can leave the screen to go to another area. And as your score goes up, enemies get more powerful. Um, this has a really amazing voice synthesizer that they would use in the attract mode. It's one of the things Berserk is famous for. You, you will um, recognize the voice sample when you hear it. Yeah, it's really appealing. And it would be like quarters detected in pocket as you walk by and stuff. Like, that's <laughs> yeah, very cute. So good. Um, they would later, the uh, 5200, uh, which we shan't speak of, um, got a version with the voice synthesizer. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Evil Auto was named after the security chief at Dave Nutting's Associates, the Nutting Associates. <laughs> <laughs> hey. hey, me and the boys. <laughs> um, so there was a security chief who would smile when he yelled at you. Mm -hmm. 
which was an evil auto is based on. Yeah. Um, and in the arcade, uh, you know, it's no Robotron. Like I love Robotron, mm-hmm. but that voice thing and the kind of rhythm of this feels very like synesthetic to me. Yeah. In uh, in the arcade, uh, really, really fun. Shooting in multiple directions is very fun. And the Atari version gets a lot of that across. Yeah. Um, what is interesting about this is that this was something where the uh, limitations of the uh, like this was like playing this after reading Racing the Beam was really in, uh, enlightening mm-hmm. because I could see the problems with it yeah. like and why they were happening. Mm-hmm. Like one of the reasons the Atari port of Berserk is less fun is only one enemy moves at a time. Yeah. You know, that sucks. Like that, that just makes it, it's very easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Atari version of this, um, the, uh, so only one enemy moves at a time and there's no real AI. Like they don't really, they kind of just move slightly towards you, mm-hmm. you know? So there's like, there's very rudimentary AI, but it's not as like frantic and intense feeling as Berserk in the arcades. It's like almost relaxing to play this version of Berserk. Yeah. Which is really weird because it's named Berserk, <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem like it should be relaxing, but it kind of is. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, it's very fun to read about the Berserk curse, mm-hmm. uh, like like this this game, like prior to something like Polybius or whatever, became uh, you know kind of a, a subject of urban legend. You know, people died playing this apparently, uh, even yeah. though the, the the accounts of that are um, even though they, the accounts of that are um, you know questions. Sorry. About yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a you know it's a Ringu. Mm-hmm. This game has Ringu qualities, <laughs> but it's fun. Uh, yeah. I, I like I like Berserk uh, quite a bit. It, e- even in the arcade version, it stands out compared to mm-hmm. compared to you know stuff that would come later, your Smash TVs and your Robotrons, uh, what have you, because it is very deliberate. Because you do have to, you know, move in the direction that you're going to shoot. Like you have to make a choice, yeah, and commit to it. Yeah. And in the arcade, like that is a meaningful choice because it's very likely you're going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, but. Yeah. In uh in the the home version you're much more safe. Yeah. yeah. Um moving on to another Activision game, uh Pitfall, uh in 1982. This is a David Crane joint. Um and uh you know this game. You've played it most likely or you have seen uh this being played or you have seen the Cheech and Chong commercial that was made for this game. Mm-hmm. Uh you play as a character named uh Pitfall Harry in this, you know, progenitor of platforming games. Um, you know, there would be others before this, but like, this is really recognizable. You are moving from screen to screen, um, dodging things as opposed to like trying to navigate a maze. Uh, you're running through the jungle, you're collecting treasure, you're avoiding hazards like logs, snakes, scorpions, fires, quicksand, uh, stuff like that. You're swinging on vines, uh, which I, I love the Tarzan yell that happens when you, uh, Mm -hmm. when you do that, it's, it's so, so endearing. Um, and and like a couple of major things about like just the, the, the macro game of this, uh, each round has a 20 minute time limit, roughly the length of a television episode. Uh, if you took the commercials out, uh, which is a really long time to be playing an Atari game. Like we said, when you're talking about Kaboom, um, additionally, you have multiple lives. Uh, David Crane initially wanted to be, wanted it to be challenging. So he had one life and his friends like, come on, Dave, you, you, you can't do that. that. That shit sucks. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. And made, made the game better. Yes. Like this is, this is a good game. Yeah. Still, you know, this is fun. Still fun and engaging to play because, you know, I, I listed off all of those hazards. All of them act differently, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, above ground, below ground, et cetera. 
Um, and a, each individual's individual screen is going to mix them up in really interesting ways. Um, mm-hmm. so like dealing, dealing with moving logs while you're also trying to jump over, you know, trying to jump over, um, a pit or, you know, run past the expanding and contracting quicksand. Like that is different than dealing with any of those, you know, alone and together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's also like interesting things too, just in terms of the number of levels. Like there mm-hmm. are more screens in this game. Yes. Than than any you know any game up to this point. There are 255 jungle screens. Yes. Uh, because it uses an algorithm, um, but they had to do a bunch of tricks to make it so like it wasn't. It's not randomly generated every time you go because then if you went left, uh-huh. you get a new brand new screen. Yeah. They created this like kind of counter that goes between you know zero and 255 that mm-hmm. will. Determines if you're left or right, either counts the counter up or down mm-hmm. back to these things. Yeah. Uh, so it's a gigantic world, but you could memorize it. Like you could know, okay, I'm going through this screen. This is fine, but I really need to be prepared for this. Or um, I want to bypass this incredibly tough screen, so I'm going to go um, underground, which advances mm-hmm. you three screens as opposed to one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, it's super interesting. And like, you know, there are technical de- details about this that are better conveyed in, uh, in Racing the Beam. That I do not want to mm-hmm. say, but like that idea to avoid keeping all of those levels of memory by just having that algorithm is again fucking genius. Yeah, um, and, and and really, you know, presages, you know, a lot of games, a lot of proc gen stuff, a lot of proc gen stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's fun to play. You know, you get, you get used to the controls. The jump is a little weird, uh, but like even the 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 run animation, which was the start of this is really good. Like Pitfall Harry is uh, an iconic design for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's a, he's a good boy. Uh, every, you know, super pitfall, all the attempts to make this modern, I did not think were good. No, no, we, we, we like have I, a, we have an, uh, exquisite suffering episode about a uh, super pitfall. Yeah. I don't like that, but no. initially the original pitfall is cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, apparently the launch party for pitfall was fucking nuts. Uh, again, pulling this from Valley of Genius, David Green uh, says, oh, we had live animals hanging in cages from the ceiling in a jungle theme. We had three live bands, a marimba band just in the entryway uh, before he got into one of the three ballrooms. Uh, these parties, every, everyone in the industry, this is a quote, these parties, everyone in the industry, and then some would come. We had 4,000 people coming to a party at Activision. These were good times. Uh, Larry Kaplan continues, Activision was so flush with cash, the programmers were traveling first class, had limousine service, company cars, a private chef, and a do not disturb sign on the door and the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, ridiculous. Yeah. Pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, take us in. Yeah, I'll take you to the next one here. Uh, I've, I've got a couple in or well, a bunch in a row. Sorry, man. That's okay. <laughs> you, you really, that, that 1982 to 83 corridor. Yeah. What was your zone? It's our generational difference. Uh, maybe, possibly, but you have a lot uh, in the uh, in the later in the later side. I here. know. I just was trying to explain it. I was just trying the to mind six uh, pattern. I was trying to make you not feel bad. Um, oh. <laughs> so, so uh, River Raid uh, also came out in 1982. This was developed by Carol Shaw, um, and this is kind of a precursor, or you know, one of the precursors to vertical shooters. Uh, things that would ultimately come later. Uh, your, you know, Raidens and such, your Ikarugas. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, this is there. There were lots of shooters before this, you know, Phoenix and, um, you know, Demon Attack, I believe it came out before this. But this is one where the screen scrolls vertically. Um, uh, prior to this, games that come out, uh, Pleiades uh, in the arcade and Caverns of Mars 
on the Atari 800. Uh, and Shaw herself was inspired by a game called Scramble. So like this isn't particularly original or inventive, but it's really fun to play because it's so fast. Yeah. Um, yeah, this feels pretty modern. Yes. Like in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, she set it on a river because of the way Atari, uh, did playfield mirroring. Like you just have a couple of patterns and make it look like a, like a, uh, natural river pretty easily with like little, um, uh, with little islands in the middle of it. Uh, something that's really cool about this is you're flying, but you have to run over fuel canisters to, um, replenish your, 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 your gas. Uh, and as you are shooting helicopters and trying to blow up bridges before you blow through them, uh, you actually, uh, can accidentally blow up your fuel, which might strand you. Well, it's, it's funny because I, I was just thinking about this because I, I also played a little – all of the games that you have on here I played or at least watched. Yeah. Um, so I played some River Raid in my day. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not – it's it's really telling of kind of modern game sensibilities that uh, you phrase that as shooting it accidentally because in the game, it is a risk-reward thing. Yeah. Um, you get points when you shoot fuel. Mm -hmm. So you are not – It's I, I think that you can accidentally shoot. I think that's oh, yeah. part of it. But I think the point is making the choice, do I want to refuel or get points? Oh, yeah. And the the uh, the emphasis on points in general that's a thing is one of yeah. the most alienating things about <laughs> going back to these games. Right? Like, why on earth would I give a shit? And mm -hmm. a lot of the interesting choices that are made in this, and specifically this and uh, Yars' Revenge, yeah, are based on that risk reward of doing a riskier thing for more points. Mm -hmm. And I am a person who has been that urge has been beaten out of me, right? You know, by by modern video games. Yes. Yeah, like so. Yars Revenge, like the stuff that you do, the risk or reward in that, like I did it to show off more than get points. Sure. Whereas with this, yeah, I guess if I was competing on score with somebody, I would blow up the gas can and look smugly at them and say, I don't need that. I'm yeah. going to beat you. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is fun. Like it's, you know, pretty basic, uh, but it feels more modern than it ought to, uh, yeah. primarily because of that speed. And the you know, the levels are just really interesting. Like you mm -hmm. end up in some really tight corridors. They do a thing where like the level geometry has to be mirrored, but the pickups don't. So you'll get a thing where like one, you know, the the world will split into two columns, mm -hmm. uh, the river, and one of them has more fuel pickups but more enemies. The other one is just easier, but there are fewer resources. Yeah. So you're making those kind of micro choices like that that are the basic elements of video games mm -hmm. um, in, in a way that's just really fun. Um, real quick, I don't want to necromance too much. No worries. Um, I found this out in researching. Did you know that uh, Pitfall 2 was the first game with unlimited lives? Really? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, Pitfall huh. 2 on the Atari. Uh, when you died, you went back to like essentially a checkpoint. Oh, wow. That's like so fucking innovative and ahead of its time. <laughs> That's so forward looking. Yeah. That is incredibly forward looking. I'm, yeah, posi like I, I'm positive somebody said, what is this baby bullshit? Yeah, I, and I just said first, you know, if if you have a really obscure television game in the pocket, please save it. Yeah. It's one of the earliest and one yeah. of the most popular. So like, just throw the one of the yeah. in there. I didn't I didn't dedicate my life to figuring out if uh, <laughs> it was actually the first. I read that in a uh, or saw that in a documentary, and I'm repeating it, so yeah. I might be wrong. Yeah. Um, but that's like really forward looking and cool, just in in terms of David Crane being a genius. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. So very cool. 
Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk Yars Revenge. Yeah, moving on uh, to Yars Revenge. This was absolutely uh, the, my favorite one. Uh, that was at my uh, at my grandma's house. I got really good at this. Uh, Yars Revenge uh, was programmed by Howard Scott Warshaw, who would go on to make the ET game. We're going to talk about that later. Um, he did it for Atari in 1982, and this became Atari's best-selling original game. Uh, yeah. Like this is original, even though it began life as a port of a vector arcade game called Star Castle. Like Howard Scott Warshaw saw, like, oh yeah. The vector screen can do stuff that we just can't hear on Atari, you know, let alone like a raster, like, you know, a more capable raster system. Uh, so I'm going to make my own thing. Um, and well, it's very interesting too, because he, he like cleared it by the, the bosses. Yeah. And the way he did it was by appealing. He said, you know, came up and said, like, I could make a port of this game you want. Mm-hmm. It will suck. Yes. Let me take the elements of this that are cool and adapt them to our actual thing. Mm-hmm. So, like, in terms of, you know, the big thing about Howard Scott Warshaw, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're going to talk about uh, this and E.T., you know, at, at some length. And as a man who uh, his skill, you know, not only his technical innovations, but in adaptation. Yeah. Like this, you know, adapting all the cool parts of Star Castle and mm-hmm. the E.T. game doing the Herculean thing of trying to take this like <laughs> soft, tender movie about a boy who's in love with a wad of testicle gum and like <laughs> and trying to like turn it into an arcade game. Like uh-huh. he did a good job at all those things. Yeah. You know, he did not deserve the reputation he got. Like, he's awesome. Yeah. He was not the grave digger of video games. No. No. Um, (laughs) Yars Revenge has, like, really goofy terminology uh, Mm -hmm. and kind of lore to it. It actually shipped with a comic book. Uh, Like, humanity brought houseflies into space accidentally and they were mutated by cosmic rays. To become to become the Yars, these, you know, space space faring fly monsters uh, of which you control one. And you're attacking this cannon on the right side of the screen, this quotial cannon uh, that is actually hidden behind this this destructible shield. Uh, So you have to shoot at it or fly up and gnaw on the um, matter of the shield in order to clear um, space, not to shoot the 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 cannon uh with your regular um with your regular bullet but you have to either eat some shield or overlap on the cannon itself to charge up your special cannon which is like a slower moving projectile that comes from the left side of of the screen and you have to time the shot because it moves very slowly so that it will hit the uh, uh it will hit the quotile cannon and win you that particular round uh, the risk reward of it is every once in a while, the cannon would turn into the spiral and shoot at you um, as this basically unavoidable or very difficult to avoid spiral. Um, and if it hit, if your special like mega cannon shot hit it when it was a spiral or hit the spiral um, as it was shooting at you, you got more points. So like you could make the shot when it was safe or you could pull off this incredibly, incredibly demanding trick shot when you were in the most danger that the game could put you into. Yeah. Well, and there's like other like weird, cool wrinkles. This like yes. your big gun could hurt you as well. Uh huh. So you had to like fire it and get out of the way, you know, and you had the safe zone, the neutral zone, mm-hmm. which is, you know, when you see a screenshot of this, it's instantly recognizable yeah. uh, because of how that was generated. Like that was proc gen. Yeah, made and it it just looks like this weird field of static that is mm-hmm. constantly changing and it looks awesome. Yeah, and you, you could know? retreat into the neutral zone in order to avoid like this missile that was just slowly following you around, but it wouldn't yes. protect you from the from the quadile cannon when it spiraled out at you. Yeah, um, just like everything about this game visually, um, auditorily, like when you get that explosion at the end, um, and like from a 
you know, important decisions of risk and reward in the middle of play. Like this is a really good, like far more complex game than a shooter of its era ought to have been. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, this is really cool. Yeah. Like uh, this is a really good game. Yeah. It is not, it, it is not surprising that it sold as well as it did. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, going to move on to my other one here. This is going to be real quick because like, I just have a lot of affection for it, even though it's not necessarily really groundbreaking, uh, barnstorming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's a stunt flying game that Steve Cartwright, uh, made in 1982. This was his first game for the company. Uh, you're playing as this, uh, uh, biplane and you're doing stunt flying. There's no combat in this. It's kind of like pilot wings to a certain degree where you're hmm. fly you're flying from left to right and you get points for uh dipping down and flying through these barns. But you also have yes. to avoid these windmills um and these geese that are flying um in patterns above. Uh yeah. and so you have to really like control the line um so that you can fly as you know fly fly as quickly as you can to get through these barns without missing any of them while also avoiding these other uh these other things that will um, uh, slow you down. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you didn't know what barnstorming is, it's what people used to do instead of having TV. They would stand on top of a flagpole while their friends yeah. crammed into, into no, uh, phone, phone, phone booths and they would watch uh, a person in a stunt plane fly through a barn who's <laughs> who has a human fly on the side. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, um, so that was basically what and they, they did. were dancing. All the Lindy, Lindy hopping. Hop. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Um, <laughs> And the show, um, the uh, like, <laughs> silence for the next forty-five minutes, and then we'll just quit. Uh, the uh, but yeah, this this is a good game. This is super yeah. fun. Uh, it's very simple. Yes, you know, but it is fun. Yeah. Um. The first three difficulty levels are static. It just has a bigger ask for you. I like the the fourth one, which is random. Mm-hmm. Uh. You know, so you can't just memorize it. I like it a lot. Yeah. yeah fun game. Yeah. Like again, just just pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one that I chose, uh, and this is a weirdo one I chose because it's weird. And also because I have really fond memories of it, um, which is the, uh, 1983, uh, Mario brothers mm-hmm. game, uh, non super edition, <laughs> um, you know, original by Nintendo and Miyamoto, of course. Um, I'm not sure who ported this to Atari. I could not find that, no. um, but came out in the same year. Uh, and this is like a, you know, if, if, during the Blade Runner, like you see a turtle on its back, what do you do? <laughs> like it's a game about that. <laughs> the um, you know, where you're you're in the sewer with your brother, and animals <laughs> come down the pipes, and you are killing the animals and collecting money that people flush down a toilet. Yeah. Um, it's the arcade version of this is beautiful. Yep. Like it has really really fun weird physics. The way the ground is kind of like cartoony mm-hmm. and bumps up. I love and the rogues gallery is really cool. Like there's a really interesting set of enemies that I, th- I think there are five enemies in Mario brothers. Um, they start doing mix-ups of them mm-hmm. and they are really interesting. So like the, the turtles, which is kind of walk, they're always on the ground. You flip them over by hitting them from below. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have the crabs, which when you do that, they get pissed and you have to hit them again. You have the flies, which jump. So they're only on the ground part of the time. You have glaciers, which when you do this, they create a slippery spot. They change mm-hmm. the physics of the level. Um, really cool. I think that might actually might be all, all four of the enemies, but they do cool mix-ups for them. Um, this is the introduction of the POW block. Mm-hmm. 
to Mario, um, which hits everyone on the screen. Incredibly fun game. Yeah. Like I, I always had a lot of affection for Mario Brothers. You can play it in uh, Super Mario Brothers 3. Mm-hmm. You can play it in lots of stuff like that. Uh, the port is mediocre as hell. Um, but I wanted to talk about it because it was this is the literal my literal first exposure to Mario. Oh, wow. You know, so I played played with Mario before Super Mario Brothers <laughs> um, because of this. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it, it's a weird thing where, again, the limitations hurt this. Um, it is really hard to immediately read what everything is. The coins look like strange little like rainbow flags. Mm-hmm. Like they don't look like coins at all. No. And uh, the way that the fireballs work, rather than being in this sine wave pattern where you could jump over them at the lowest point of their, you know, their travel, their journey, they just kind of go straight. So it's almost impossible to avoid them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just kind of feels worse in general. The, like the actual like, like the jump and run physics are not recognizable at all. Yeah, they're they're not nearly as good. Yeah. Like it's still playable. Like you could play the Atari Mario Brothers and still have fun mm-hmm. with it, but it is a real downgrade. Yeah. I was um, disappointed uh, when I fired this up. Oh. Of like a game that I think is interesting and weirdly overlooked that I have, you know, I I've always had a lot of affection for the original Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. I think it is a cool fun game. Way yeah. better than like Wrecking Crew. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. you know, <laughs> fucking Wrecking and, Crew. Uh, man. Yeah, Wrecking Crew can go to hell. Um, yeah, so this this is a pretty pretty big failure of a port yeah to my mind it's so. it's weird like it is you know worth the novelty to see a nintendo character or a nintendo game on a non-nintendo system mm-hmm. just in yeah. this weird era but yeah, yeah that was kind of kind of the idea yeah behind choosing it but yeah. you know this is this is the closest we're gonna get to a mario brothers episode <laughs> the original mario <laughs> brothers uh it's cool and fun yeah um can you do a uh, texas chainsaw massacre because i want to do the good one of these before i do mine which is not as good Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, Texas and these both came out the same year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1983 uh, mm-hmm. by VSS made by Ed Salvo. Uh, this is a fun, good game. It's incredibly simple. Mm-hmm. Um, you are the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, man. You're leather Leatherface. Face. Yep. Uh, and you are running back and forth trying to kill kids before you run out of gas in your chainsaw, <laughs> which I, I love that as a very like. Yes, though, if I was a, if I was a Leatherface, <laughs> that'd probably be a concern. Yeah. You know, your gas budget just through the roof, you know, <laughs> the price of fuel and petroleum. Um, and as you're doing so, uh, you control your button, choose whether you're revving your saw. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to go up to a kid, overlap your chainsaw with them, and then rev the saw yeah. to kill them. Uh, getting in the way is the kids will kind of juke you. They'll jump to either side of you. And then there are obstacles. And if you get your saw stuck in an obstacle, you just have to rev it and use fuel mm-hmm. until you burn through the obstacle. Yeah. Including wheelchairs that are flying at you at incredible speeds. <laughs> With lots of velocity. Yep. Uh, and every fifth kill you kid you kill uh, is full of gasoline for your chainsaw. Of course. So you can theoretically play forever and just kind of get really high scores. That's, by... where, that's where Doom got the idea. Exactly. It's a glory kill system. <laughs> um, and this is like really you know, hilariously macabre and, and yeah. fun. Um, just really violent, which is novel, mm-hmm. you know, on a uh, Atari game and is actually a pretty fun little arcade game. Yeah. Uh, this is really rare. Uh, they intended to, you know, ride some controversy with it, but this company and the company that made Halloween, uh, which is a game I'm going to talk about next, they were real fly by night. And, yeah. you know, if you have one of these, one of these cartridges, uh, congratulations, you're one of the richest Kings in Europe. Yes. Yep. Uh, it is, uh, you know, they, them kind of banking on that controversy and showing up too late when the crash had already kind of begun <laughs> is a sad, you know, a, a sad kind of idea yes. to me. Yeah. Like, oh, like we're going to, we're going to get in on this. And it's like, man, you're a year too late. Ah, oh, damn it. You know, 
and you made and you actually made like a good fun game fuck yeah exactly like it's it's very simple mm-hmm. you know it is it is like the, the one of the most simple games i played mm-hmm. for this like it's it's you just do it for scores yeah and uh at some point i got eventually kind of bored playing it but mm-hmm. it is fun yeah um something that is a little bit less fun is halloween uh also came out in 1983 based on the movies kinda uh it was released by a company called wizard video uh, and programmed by somebody named tim martin if that is his real name uh mm-hmm. and you're playing as this babysitter who is in this two-floor house michael myers is in the house trying to kill you and the kids and you have to explore this space to get the kids and take them to safe rooms uh, while mm. avoiding uh, Myers, who doesn't really like follow logic in the way that he fo- that he chases after you. Like sometimes he'll be coming from the right, then you go to a new room and he's coming from the left. Which, though cheap gameplay, is actually something that happens in those movies. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's that. Um, this would be more fun than it is, you know. Uh, but the collision detection is really bad, and getting the kids to stick with you after you find them is not reliable at all. Uh, it's like a good idea for a game that fits the license well, but it is implemented very, very poorly. Mm. Uh, although it is fun. If you get caught by Mike Myers, uh, he chops your character's head off and the, your body runs forward with a geyser of blood coming out of the neck and the arms are flailing. And then, and then you're, you're, you're gone. So yeah, like this kind of low pixel violence is kind of cute, very funny and extremely transgressive. Yes. Yeah. You know, in, in, in like a death race, Yeah, you know, pre or post death race kind of world, like all that mm-hmm. stuff is interesting. You know, the, the, yeah. the, those early toe in the line <laughs> kind yeah. of things. Uh, well, it's hilarious. This game sold poorly and wizard video, uh, like eventually became so broke that like the majority of them don't even have an actual label. They just put a piece of tape on the cartridge and wrote Halloween on it. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, presumably also a pretty rare. Yeah. Title. I'm um, pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, next thing uh, I have is joust um, made by Williams in 1982 by John newcomer uh, poured to the 2600 in mm-hmm. Um, so this is, uh, if you don't know joust, it is a game in which you are a knight on an ostrich, um, trying to, you know, kind of butt stomp on enemies from above to make them drop eggs, which presumably they like lay in the moment, <laughs> which is weird, uh, which you then collect for points and you get rid of the enemy. And that's how you get to the new score or the new stage mm-hmm. while certain, uh, like a, uh, pterodactyl. We'll fight you, and there is a troll that is in the lava that, if you get too low, mm-hmm. will come up and grab you. And that's basically it. Um, but there are a lot of really cool things about this that were pretty innovative at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it is co-op, so this is a really fun thing to sit down and play with somebody and your two these two knights, you know, teaming up. Um, it is not space themed, like the uh, John Newcomer specifically sat down and was like, "I want to make a game with flight, but everyone is doing spaceships. What else flies?" Yeah. And set a bird. And this did a, this ended up creating an entirely new control scheme mm-hmm. um, because the way you move in this is you flap. The button flaps your wings and you have that flappy bird balloon fight yeah. uh, kind of kind of physics to this, which I don't love mm-hmm. as, a, as a mechanic. You know, I don't really like balloon fight. Mm-hmm. You know, there are these games I don't really care for, but I like it in Joust because it's novel and the first one. Yes. Um, also us. like you're doing more interesting things than just navigating, like you're using yeah. it for combat, like getting a good head of speed on you and doing the wraparound to kill something, uh, yes. it's really fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a good game. Um, 
This is also the first game that I played, um, my first exposure to competitive gaming. Like it is cooperative, Mm -hmm. but there is a versus mode and me and my family did this in like kind of like miniature tournaments, like Mm. nothing more complicated than I play winner. Yeah. But you know, I was like five. Mm -hmm. So this was, this was a real watershed and like sitting around a TV playing games against each other. Yeah. Me and my family, like I had two cousins who lived with me at the time. Mm -hmm. Like it was a big house and we had a lot of fun with joust. Um, the port, uh, is not great. Um, it is okay. It doesn't feel quite as good, but it feels pretty good. Um, but the, uh, the enemies, uh, are really flickery because of that sprite limit. Um, I didn't play this on a CRT. It'd probably be better on that. Um, but the biggest issue is they have no AI. Um, they just kind of move at an angle Mm -hmm. and if they're not trying to avoid you, it, it's not nearly as fun. Yeah. You know, so, uh, and the sound, it is impossible to listen to. <laughs> it's one of the ugliest, like, audio things yeah. that we've done on this podcast. <laughs> it's exceedingly ugly. Yeah. Um, so. I was surprised at how well they implemented it. Like, yeah, the no enemy AI sucks, but, like, for me, one of the enjoyable parts is doing the flapping. So, oh, sure. Yeah. Like, it, it's still a joy in the hands. Like, it feels good. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was just like, I, you know, if I'm in an arcade and I see Joust, I'll usually play it. I like, yeah. have a lot of affection for Joust. I love um, that. And, uh, that cabinet art is amazing. Oh yeah. You know, and, and like Killer Queen is cool, which is basically more complicated Joust. Mm-hmm. Um, so just having the lack of it just being a little too easy. That was the thing I was really surprised about between this and Berserk mm-hmm. was the idea of these ports that are actually much easier than the arcade versions where I would almost anticipate the opposite. Right. Right. You know, just because they're more primitive and because it's a home version and like maybe they feel like they need to up the challenge but yeah 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 it's just it's strange how like the you know when i when i think about this when i think about adapting something from the arcade to the atari i think okay the the compromises they make are going to be visual are related to other kinds of you know visual sound fidelity no it necessarily had to be like compromise the way the game played too Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. I'm um, going to do my last one here. Uh, this is another Steve Cartwright jam moving from the wholesome joy of barnstorming uh, to mm-hmm. yeah. another wholesome joy of uh, dental hygiene. I decided to pick Plaque Attack from 1983. It's an Activision game. Uh, you control a tube of toothpaste inside uh, what uh, you know is sold to you as a human mouth, but this could be a gigantic monstrosity flying in space. It's quite horrifying. Um, you've got teeth on the top and bottom of the screen, and you have to shoot junk food before it can touch the teeth and rot them away. Sure. Um, as you do. As you do, yeah. Uh, but this is really interesting because of the wave timing. Uh, there, you know... Uh, new, uh, new enemies, new food can come in while you're dealing with, uh, with an old wave. Uh, and you're kind I, I'm of always s- eating while I brush my teeth. <laughs> yep. So <laughs> I like to like throw a croissant in there yeah. just for the, the thrill of the hunt. You know? <laughs> um, uh, but you're also like, it, you know, it is not like a standard shooter where all of the, uh, threats are coming from, you know, a predictable direction. Uh, they can either be moving up or down. So you're kind of like moving in the center and trying to take the stuff out, uh, because, you know, the new stuff could come in. Uh, God, those candy cans. Fuck the candy cans, man. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, protecting, you know, two, uh, you know, two targets on either side of the screen. Um, it gets complex. Like it's a really engaging shooter. And I would be lying if I said that the, uh, that the novel theming didn't work to its uh, benefit. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, if you uh, <laughs> if you scored more than thirty five thousand points, you could send in a photo of the screen uh, to get a patch. You could be in the no plaque pack. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This this was the the Activision patch was a, a yeah. cool thing. I love it. Um, you know, if you got good scores, you could you could send those in. Those are rare now. Yeah. Uh, and they look incredible. Yeah. Like what a cool thing. Yeah. This is a game that I never had at home uh, until I got the Activision Classics. Uh, this is actually like the game that was, um, man, fifth grade science class. Like if we did good or if it was like a treat day, uh, the teacher would pull out the Atari 2600 and we could take turns playing Black Attack on the TV in the front, at the front of the, at the front of the classroom. Uh, educational, incredibly fun. Yeah, and much cool. better much better than johnson and johnson's tooth protectors uh the, yes. the, the first <laughs> advert game <laughs> so. um yeah uh good you know good game yeah no, super good game um so the last one i picked uh the last game we're talking about um you know for this portion of the the episode um i googled like impressive atari games or like you know what are the most advanced mm-hmm Atari games and there are a couple of those that show up on the list the Solaris is the big one which yeah. looks awesome oh. uh, but I ended up choosing Hero uh, H-E-R-O Hero's really good I'm surprised you didn't know about this as a Metroid fan yeah this is really cool yeah. uh, so this is uh, another Activision joint uh, 1984 so by John Van Risen or Risen um, where you play Roderick Hero or R Hero uh, mm-hmm. and Hero is the helicopter emergency rescue operation <laughs> Um, and you're basically rescuing trapped miners. Um, what's awesome about this is uh, the loop, like mm-hmm. the play loop for each level and your move set. Yeah. Um, you have a helicopter backpack with limited fuel, uh, which ticks down um, as you as you play. Um, you need to have fuel when you get to the miner. Mm-hmm. Uh, presumably, you don't actually have to get the miner out or extract them, but you have to have fuel when you get there. Yeah. Um, you have a laser helmet uh, that shoots lasers out of it to fight like pitfall-esque spiders and scorpions and shit mm-hmm. and then you can you have a limited amount of dynamite to bust through certain walls and uh every level is you start at the surface um and you head down trying to get progressively deeper and deeper to get down to the minor yeah um with a like really pretty fun fun feeling uh, and complicated control mm-hmm. scheme um just really really wildly ambitious yeah you know, um, there's these like uh, resource management elements. There are puzzle elements. You know, I have three dynamites. How do I get past these, you know, these walls? Mm-hmm. I have four walls to get past. Is there a way to do this? Um, there's some trial and error to that, yeah. you know, because you can't see the screen before you go down to it. But um, at its best, it feels like trial and error. Um, there are traps. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is something that like probably influenced, you know, like Spelunky or yeah. like games like that. Like there's probably some DNA of this in a lot of later games. Yeah. It's really good. Like the complexity of this is kind of off the charts, you know, it came out really late. It came out after the crash. Like, yeah. Uh, this uh, took a lot of effort and, you know, stands on a lot of work that other people did previously, yes. um, in order to make it happen. But it is, it is nuts. I, uh, I, I never, I didn't play this until I got it on a compilation disc and I was, I was shocked at how complex yeah. it is. Yeah, this is a really cool game. Yeah, um, you know it's uh, it's stage based. Mm-hmm. You know, so it has some Metroidvania element to it in terms of like feel mm-hmm. and the fact that you're using multi-purpose tools. 
Yes. You know, to get past obstacles. But instead, it's 99 stages of increasing like complexity and more beautiful, bold Atari colors Mm -hmm. um, that you go through. So each stage is bespoke. Yeah. Um, You know, you start with that stage. It's just very fun. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Hero is a really fun game. Good video game. So, yeah. Into it. Love that game. Super good game. Uh, so that's this portion. Uh, mm-hmm. Now we're going to talk about what happened to Atari. Going to get to the dark days. Dark days, baby. <laughs> and that was the positive sandwich they had to do with innovation. And like, now let's get into the garbage thing. And I want to trash this documentary. I watched it a little bit. So oh, okay, that'll cool. be part of this. I need to talk some shit about Zach Penn's game over documentary. Uh, so it's, I remember uh, reading it's, news articles about that. It was really it's embarrassing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I want to talk about some of the, uh, some of the excesses of Atari, uh, specifically mm-hmm. pulled from this Valley of Genius book. Uh, you know, which I didn't read all of, but like the first half of it is related to Atari. Uh, but yeah, we, you know, we talked about Ray Kassar, the Dirk Kassar being in town. Uh, he came in and buttoned things down. Uh, but it was still the eighties and cocaine I rules or <laughs> cocaine yeah. ideas ruled the day. Um, yeah, like, and just, they spent a lot of money on a lot of really, really, really dumb stuff. Yeah. Uh, so like sending a private jet to go to the West coast to get shrimp, <laughs> like, you know, I don't know if each shrimp got a ticket. Like each shrimp was like buckled in <laughs> like, like, like that picture of the, of the plane full of Falcons. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, that, uh, lots of big, you know, wine, cocaine parties. They had a sauna in the engineering section, which makes me think of that basement <laughs> trap thing that pool in the basement yep. which you like put on slack which you know I from the old something awful goon layer thread i love it <laughs> I'm, I'm way into that yeah and alan k we'll talk about alan k being hired but uh uh there's a quote from him the joke was you could tell how atari was doing by the size of the shrimp in the executive dining room it's real weird it's very beaver boys energy yeah like, it's, you know, the size of the shrimp being a a marker for you know, wealth. Yeah. The, 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 the wine and cocaine parties, uh, Chris can, one of the salespeople, we used to joke that we had the only international sales team in the industry that imported more than exported. It's very funny. Jesus. Uh, uh <laughs> but when the crash came, we we're talking about the crash 1983, the, the cocaine went from being celebratory to being performance enhancing. Uh, yes. it was fuel for deadlines and they got people hooked on Coke in order to stay up longer. Yeah. Which, you know, is in that that's that's why Liam Neeson went and rescued his daughter from Taken. Uh, yeah. You know, like like getting somebody hooked on a drug for performance reasons is human trafficking shit. Yeah. No, I'm, not, I'm not like trying to say that's as bad as what they did, but it's just real vile shit. Right. And when we say getting them hooked, like we're not saying like they were, you know, necessarily like injecting them against their will. Right. But it being something that was a known strategy. Mm hmm. Is pretty vile. I mean, like, I'll just, I'll just re- read this, read this quote here from Brenda Laurel. You know, somebody who worked yeah. at the at the company in the late days. A guy from BizDev invited me into his hardwalled office, uh, and he had he had a gla- uh, he had the glass from the Battleship arcade game on his desk, and he cut a big line of cocaine, and he said, "Here, snort this. It will help you work better." I'd never seen cocaine. I didn't know what it was. I'm a naive hippie and I'm thinking cocaine, uh, you know, they lied, <laughs> you know, they lied to us about grass. So this is probably fine. And Coke became a problem for me for about a year until I realized I was going to kill myself. So there was a lot of Coke going around. Yeah. Like so that, that's bone chilling. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a real villainous. Yeah. You know, that's not okay. No, no. Um, and at the same time, like their marketing was about how addictive Atari games were. Mm hmm. 
So that's gross. Yeah. Like, uh, like all of this has gotten real, like, you know, the, the weird compound for lost boys that shredder runs. <laughs> and, and, and just hurls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it has that feel to it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, we, we work for Atari. We call ourselves the foot clan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just, yeah, real, real gross. Yeah. And, and go, go listen to our episode of Abject Suffering about Sword Quest or Earthworld. Like that whole idea of making these incomprehensible puzzle games about hieroglyphics and giving people, uh, gold prizes, swords yeah, and, and <laughs> swords and scepters worth like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Like just fucking ridiculous. Uh, the game sold so poorly that the unused prices were sent back to the mint and melted down. So I'm upset about that because I was still low key looking for those things. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like if, if I had a genie yeah. and I had three wishes, three is honestly a lot. Like yeah. I might, one of them might be for all the sword quest artifacts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Jesus. So, uh, Atari is largely blamed for the video game crash 1983. And that is in turn largely blamed, uh, falsely, mm-hmm. you know, as, as we'll, we'll discover on these kind of big high profile failures. Right. Um, the two poster children for it are the Pac-Man port in uh, 1982 mm-hmm. was this very anticipated thing. Cause Pac-Man was huge. Right. Um, but it was made in again, another labor nightmare. Right. You know, yeah. um, it's like six weeks or something like that as opposed to six, six months. Yeah. Yep. Uh, six weeks. Um, and, uh, they had to port this thing that the Atari was just not made to do. No, no. Um, the, uh, this was when Atari had loosened, you know, because they were losing talent to these other third party things, they started doing royalties Mm -hmm. and, uh, Todd Fry, the guy who made this got 10 cents per, you know, Pac-Man cartridge Mm -hmm. sold and they sold 7 million. It was a bunch. It was a bunch, but they had intended and printed 10 million. Mm Mm-hmm. So the very like kind of famous uh, bit of this that is that is true mm-hmm. is that they were like, you know, people will want multiple copies. This will sell systems. Mm-hmm. They printed more copies than there were 2600s in the wild. Yes. Which is a uh, a real famous like just kind of like excess business excess story. It's a cocaine uh, idea. <laughs> it's a cocaine idea. Like it's it's very greedy and weird. Yeah. And shitty. Yeah. But it's funny because like Todd Fry, he made all of this money off of, a, you know, a high profile flop. He still worked for the company and he didn't necessarily hide like that, that he, like how well he was doing on the no. back of it. So like he rolls in, look closer, Lenny. You know, like, oh, you're gigantic and covered in gold, Todd Fry. <laughs> you know, because because you made uh, in addition, you know, you made your seven hundred thousand dollars or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, from from selling copies of Pac-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Pac-Man port is actually pretty impressive for what it is. Yes. It's actually like for the people who are programmer dorks about this, it's really interesting. Like several mm-hmm. people have gone in and fixed it. Yes. Like what would this look like if you had instead of six weeks, you know, twenty four weeks? Mm-hmm. You know, to do this, which was a pretty standard amount of time. Like most Atari games took six months. Yeah. Um how could this have been good? And they could have made it a lot better. And mm-hmm. then later there's a Miss Pac-Man. Yeah. Which it, it works. Better. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It has, it has the cinematics, you know, has a lot of the elements you recognize from Pac-Man. Mm-hmm. So like it wasn't Todd Fry's fault. Like Atari just put a shitload of constraints on him that made it impossible to succeed. Yeah. It gave him five weeks. Right. That's, that's ridiculous. Or six yeah. weeks. Yeah. You know, absolutely 
bonkers and bad. Mm-hmm. So lots of people were looking forward to this gigantic game. You know, they were really let down uh, when it yep. hit because of these differences. Uh, another popular cu- uh, culprit. Uh, you know, this is I blame this on like Sean Baby and on Angry Video Game Nerd, whatever. It is considered that the E.T. license game killed Atari. Uh, possible, but it is not the actual game itself. Like they, again, because of business reasons, set themselves up so that uh, success was impossible. Like yeah. Warner CEO went around Atari and like gave Steven Spielberg $23 million to get the rights to this gigantic movie in order yep. to make a game out of it. Um, Kassar thought that this was the dumbest idea. Like $23 million is more profit than any game could hope, hope to make. So, like, whatever they did, they were always going to be in the hole. Yes. Uh, The bad documentary Game Over has a good quote um, where they say it wasn't Atari that killed the industry. The same factors that killed the industry created – or not Atari. It wasn't E.T. that killed the industry. The same factors that created E.T. killed the industry. Yeah. You know, it was was the systemic sickness Mm -hmm. that led to there being E.T. in the first place. Right. You know, where $23 million was the kind of like pie in the sky thing they could offer. Mm-hmm. Um, the story, the one thing that's good about that documentary is there's lots of Howard Scott Warshaw. Yep. It seems like a very good guy. Yep. Um, and he talks about his experience with this, where he talks about, um, you know, he went and pitched this to Spielberg mm-hmm. and Spielberg played it and liked it. Yeah. Like he had no idea that people were not going to like his game mm-hmm. after he made it and then had this like there's this really heartbreaking moment in it where he starts talking about people in the hallway stopping him and being like, Hey man, we don't blame you. <sighs> and him not knowing what they're talking about. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. Oof. You know? And then he became, you know, because of your Sean Biggie babies and AVGNs and stuff mm-hmm. has become the poster child for this thing, which, you know, we didn't have suffering on ET. Yeah. ET is so far from the worst game ever made. Yeah. Um, it is really ambitious and neat. Mm-hmm. It's complicated. Yeah. But that was, you know, Warshaw's thing. Like that's mm-hmm. what he did. It's, you know, him doing that, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark game with the inventory mm-hmm. on the second stick, him doing uh, Yar's revenge. He didn't want, he wanted to push, he wanted to make different types of games. Yeah. Like if he had, had waited two years and switched over to making, you know, DOS games, mm-hmm. like he could have been made legendary. that ET game. Yeah. You know, it could have been legendary. You know, he could have made like, you know, like things that, that were, he could have invented genres. Mm-hmm there it feels like but he basically never worked again right. in games after this like he he worked again he became a real estate agent for a little while mm-hmm. and now he's a th- like a silicon valley therapist mm-hmm. he like does like literally moves on and does therapy for people who are being overworked and shit on by companies who are in his position yeah no it seems like he would have a lot of knowledge about that <laughs> yeah you know and he he seems pretty well adjusted yeah now but this was he got set up with a poison chalice like there yeah. was no way for this to work no no. You know. Yeah. And you know just it was just again these systemic factors, you know, all of the commercial considerations, uh, you know, Atari being unwilling to take public risks, so like, you know, taking private risks or spending a bunch of money on things that seem like a good, that seem like they're going to make a return. Like, you know, they went to Xerox Park and hired Alan Kay, who's, you know, this, you know, monumental person like, you know, just went <laughs> who invented so many things about computers that we take for granted today. Alan Kay was the basis for uh, the sidekick character in Tron, actually. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, big, huge guy. They brought him in to work on these moonshots. 
Right. So like as opposed to, you know, being research and development after Al Alcorn left, he was just in research, which is like, hey, come up with these ideas. There's no development attached to it. We're just trying to harvest this. So like things like virtual reality, telecommunication, electronic music, all the stuff happening. Um, and when Atari hit these really hard times, Ray Kassar came to Alan Kay and said, hey, we really need a win here. Uh, do you have anything that we can sell? And Alan Kay is like, you. You don't understand. You didn't hire me to make anything that could make you money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is an idea. Right. Farm. You yeah. know, basically. Yeah. Um, was the idea behind this. So that, that is, that is fucked up. Uh, the bigger thing that I think is probably the biggest actual contributing factor. Yeah. Yeah. To this is the fact that, uh, the industry got too big. There was too much competition and no one knew what a good game was anymore. Right. Like there were just too many Atari games out there. They had 20 competitors selling, you know, third party selling cartridges. Mm-hmm. Atari was making games and giving people cocaine instead of ideas mm-hmm. in order to make them. And there were just a bunch of dog shit games. Yes. And because of all these dog shit games and bad third party titles and bad first party titles, mm-hmm. um, no one knew what a good game was. Yeah. Like, you know what? You would go to a store. They would ask you for $130. <laughs> and this wasn't like now where there was this robust system of surfacing mm-hmm. kind of things. Like now, you know, we have for all of its evils. We have Metacritic. Yeah. Or just critics in general. Yeah. Right. Like, I'm sure there were some like trade magazines and such, but it wasn't in the public consciousness enough. Right. Word of mouth spreads across the entire globe instantaneously now. Yeah. Yeah. And back then it was not the case. So if you went to the store and you looked at Johnson and Johnson's tooth protectors and thought, (laughs) like, this looks cool. Like, I love that other tooth game. (laughs) Uh, And then you took it home and it was horseshit. Yeah. It's 130 bucks. You would tell tell your friends, people would not buy it. The retailer would be stuck with a bunch of Johnson & Johnson tooth protectors, have to get rid of them, sell them back to the company so they get like reverse profits. Mm-hmm. It's what happened on ET. It's what happened on, or on Pac-Man. Mm-hmm. You know, these problems. They were also this, just the system was getting like really long in the tooth. It was really old. Like, you yeah. know, around 1982, they put out the 5200 with all of its – all of its problems. The 2600 stuck around as like a budget system. And people made that until 1992. Yeah. <laughs> you, they were making new Atari 2600s. Right. Like that is out of this world. Yes. You know, like, and like they didn't innovate and make something attractive fast enough. And like the market probably wasn't ready to, to invest in a, in a new machine, you know, to spend yeah. another, you know, equivalent of a thousand dollars to get something here. Or if they were ready, uh, to make another machine or to get another machine, they thought, okay, well, can I get something that's more useful than, than, than just a game machine? Like the home computer probably had as much of a hand in killing Atari as any decision Atari made. Right. Yes. Because people like saw something more versatile. They also saw something where they could get it and pirate the software. Yeah. Well, and you didn't have all these, you know, this whole time that Atari has been riding on this 2600 thing and being like, we happen to have accidentally employed a bunch of geniuses that could make this system do things it was never meant to do. Right. And it's like, oh, but somebody could actually just go over to this microcomputer and just mm-hmm. make the bard's tail. Yeah. Like you don't have to kludge it. Like mm-hmm. you wouldn't have to cheat. Right. To make it. And they were just basically like, hey, you know, uh, uh, David Crane did it. Uh huh. Like this, this will never run out. Mm-hmm. You know, like the idea that the good fortune will never run out is such a poisonous idea that leads to so much tragedy. Yeah. You know, things are good and they'll always be good. Mm-hmm. You know, again, boogie nights, right? Like <laughs> it, it just, it's not the case. Like it, it's, 
you know, there there are limits to all of this yeah. shit. Atari got incredibly complacent. Yeah. In the documentary on how Duckfeed falls, they're going to play the audio from this <laughs> over like signs of the smoldering Duckfeed compound. Yeah. If, if only they took their own advice. Only, <laughs> like, um, so uh, they kept lo- they were hemorrhaging money. Uh-huh. Like at just like an amazing rate. They lost $500 million uh, in a year. That's about yep. $1.3 billion today. Yep. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. So they, tr- they tried to cut cost. You know, so they cut employees and they moved uh, manufacturing offshore. All these things to try to cut costs. Yeah. Uh, um, this led to the landfill thing. Yeah, let's talk about the landfill. Yeah. Because uh, I watched a, an hour-long documentary about it that I'll never get Jeez, Godspeed, man. <laughs> um, it was like – it's not all bad, but it, it is too – so it's really weird. It's made by Zach Penn, who is the guy who wrote uh, X-Men 2 and 3. Fun. And like a bunch of like trash yeah. movies. You know, like X-Men 2 is a good movie. But yeah, like, yeah. You know, uh, also X-Men 3, X-Men United, um, things like that. And he has one of the weirdest energies. Like the movie is edited so strange. He makes a lot of jokes about him being kind of awkward to people who are like at work, like construction people and stuff. Uh, and then cuts away before they you can tell whether they're like vibing with him. <laughs> so it doesn't it doesn't feel like an office like Michael Scott thing so much as just like, who is this guy? <laughs> like, why why are you doing this? This is rude. I have a family. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they, these people have families, my man. Um, he talks about that. He's talking. He's basically talking about the big excavation yeah. that happened in 2014 about this, uh, where the landfill was. Mm-hmm. Um, the parts of the documentary that are about Howard Scott Warshaw are cool. Mm-hmm. The parts that are actually about the excavation are kind of interesting mm-hmm. because they didn't know uh, some guy who uh, lived in uh, Amalagoro. Alamogordo. Alamogordo. There you go. Was basically convinced he knew where it was by looking through old records cool but so you know because this this was apocryphal mm-hmm. like somebody on the slack was talking about it and they're like oh i thought this was just a known thing it really wasn't yeah like people you know atari denied it like it was, it was likely it was like a myth like they like they, they they tried to hide it they were um you know it was reported in a newspaper they're like yeah they put a bunch of old, old like old hardware um yeah. but it was not like it was not implied to be actual games that they or or it. to the degree that it was yes you know so they uh this was something that was not known for a long time. This is a very long urban legend. So I can mm-hmm. understand why to make a documentary about unearthing it, like it yeah. actually being a thing, you know, it's real. And it's kind of fun to watch. Like all mm-hmm. these nerds showed up, um, you know, they, they dig, it takes a long time for them to find anything. Because they covered it in, in cement because they like, covered in cement. <laughs> initially they posted guards to keep the kids away from coming yeah. up and Hey, Hey, free game. Like, okay, that's not going to work. We need to cover this with cement in order to like lock it away. Yep. Yeah. Um, so they eventually find it, found it. They unearthed 70 uh, or 700,000 cards, um, of which though. So again, ET not being the, the smoking gun that people think it is 10% mm-hmm. were ET. Yeah. So like this was tons of games. This were all of their games. This was Pac-Man. This was systems. This is just stock. Yeah. You know, our ET was a very small part of it. The most embarrassing part about the documentary is, uh, uh, Ernest Klein, the ready player one guy <laughs> yep. okay. Zach, Zach kind of worked with, uh, is in it. And there's a part in this documentary that killed me. So Ernest Klein is talking about going to this thing. And he, he says just like straight up Ernest Klein, he's like, yeah, so I just need to go get my DeLorean from George R. R. Martin, uh, to go, to go do this. And it's basically like Sam going to, uh, Westeros to get the one ring to throw into the back to the future. Uh, machine and he just says that like back you know it's before the world had turned against him you know i like to think that he would not say that now 
but it's so name droppy and gross. And then he goes and like he had loaned his uh, DeLorean to George R. R. Martin, who had taken it to a Back to the Future thing. And then it's like just the two of them stand there talking, being like, we're famous nerds. Uh, and George R. R. Martin is a sweet old man and he funded Meow Wolf and he's a he's a good person. Yeah. It's just gross, uh, you know, watching Ernest Klein. And then there's tons of footage of him. He straps an E.T. Uh, doll into the passenger seat and then him like driving and like air drumming to the cool 80s music for like what it's an hour and six minute long documentary. It feels like four minutes of it or that. Like, let's cut to some B-reel of Ernest Klein, like air drumming to, you know, poison or whatever. It's excruciating. Uh, hey, Gary, I need to I'll be I'll be right back. Uh, sorry. No, um, my, no, my 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 skeleton jumped out of my body. Uh, oh, 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 okay. I, I, I just assumed it was a classic shit. <laughs> yeah, it, was me, it was me running across the house taking emergency shit. No, I no. was doing a joke about my skeleton jumping out of my body and running out of yeah. the house. I've got to go catch it. it. It's a, it's, it's, it's a real rough, rough watch. <sighs> Fucking yuck, man. <laughs> it's a, it's gross. I am, I'm very happy about the uh, backlash against that guy because <laughs> it's like, yeah, you he know, just, maybe... he doesn't seem nice. <laughs> Well, and maybe it was a little bit overdone, and I'm sympathetic to people who are a little annoyed at the backlash. Yeah, But, yeah. like, watching that guy talk, it is extremely clear that that dude sucks. Listen to and our Abject Suffering episode about uh, uh about Ready, Ready Player, Player Fuck to hear. It's extremely funny. Yeah. Go, like, how are you? <laughs> I'm all right. Says, <laughs> um, got any Tony, like, the Tony Hawk sprite that's named, like, <laughs> Sonic 69 or whatever. <laughs> like, Ready Player Fuck is a must-play game. Oh, yeah. So, anywho, Ugh, anyway, the, the, the thing also that factors into the angry video game nerd movie, which I've not seen, but mm, yeah, you know, just full, full circle. Appa- apparently, I've not seen one of these to confirm it, but like, so you know, a lot of these made their way into like museums around New Mexico just as part of local oh, lore. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you can get a you can get your hands on some of these, like a piece of the Berlin Wall. Uh, uniformly, they smell fucking awful. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They're pulling out tons of like just actually there's a scene in the documentary where they pan across the junkyard and you can see four <laughs> toilet seats. <laughs> like hedge toilet seats. <laughs> they're just um, naturally occurring toilet seats. And then they uh they talk to the, the, the mayor of the town. He's like, Yeah, well, you know, that is our property, like and they're they're we're gonna sell them. And then the final shot of the documentary is Zach Penn being like, If anyone else makes a bad game, would you want them to bury the uh bury them in your town? He's like yeah, bring it on. <laughs> we'll bear your bad game for money. And then, like, that's the final shot. Cool. Like, what, what tone are you going for, Zach Penn? <laughs> um, you know, because there's parts of it that are, like, you know, uh, Warshaw, like, tearing up, talking about basically, like, hey, this was the thing that killed my career, and it's so crazy to see all these people gathered here and, like, you know, being way into it being, you know, literally unearthed. You yeah. Know? And it's, like, kind of moving. Like, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel fake. Yeah. You know, and then uh, and then just the the rest of all the the absolute dog <laughs> dog poop smelling <laughs> video games. Like you can get a broken box that ET that smells like shit mm-hmm. on eBay if you like. Yeah, well, you have to double freezer back them so it doesn't ruin your house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to keep it in the fridge like a wedding cake piece. <laughs> yeah, this has to be frozen. Yeah, ice down the ET. <laughs> Around this time, uh, Ray Kassar uh, said something that's a really good line, you know, just you know, talking about like, hey, you know, why we're having problems said, oh, you can't fool 13 year olds. Like yeah. we tried it and, and we fucked up because you just can't do it. Yep. <sighs> so um, so they just kind of kept throwing money at their problems. Yeah. Uh, you know, and eventually everything was basically gone. 
Um, they tried to get bought. Mm-hmm. Um, before this big crash happened, um, Ray Kassar, uh sold all of his stock. Right. Um, 23 minutes before they posted their quarter. Yep. Um, did not get away with this. Nope. <laughs> that's called insider trading, and it's super illegal. Yeah, that's what they got Mar- Martha Stewart on. Yeah, um, not good. No, no. And like the irony is, uh, the thing that would bring home consoles back, you know, uh, outside of the PC market, uh, Nintendo was actually courting Atari around this time to distribute the NES. You know, to bring the Famicom yeah. to the United States, but like Atari didn't have their shit together because everything was, in, you know, in a cocaine fire. <laughs> so like, oh, yeah. we'll just we'll just do it on our own. That's that's fine. Imagine the Atari NES. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Well, it's also it's not just the cocaine fire. It's also this pride thing. Yeah. Like there are a yeah. bunch of you know heartbreaking like quotes about this where they went and looked at it and they're like uh, they had had um, the seventy eight hundred mm-hmm. um, in prototype form. Yeah, and they you know they were they looked at the NES and they were like, yes, this is much better than what we have in development, mm-hmm. but what we have in development isn't done yet. Right. Like they still had the fight in them is mm-hmm. the way I read this. Like they wanted to like compete with this thing. And that's yeah. just amazing hubris. Yep. But there, there's always a little bit of tragedy to hubris. Of course. You know, like they were on top of the world and they thought they could still, mm-hmm. you know, could still present. Yeah. And they couldn't. Yeah. Um, so. Over the course of 1984, they went from 10,000 employees to 200. Yeah. Uh, Brenda, <laughs> Brenda Laurel said at the very end, I'm told it was like the fall of Saigon. People were dropping equipment into the trunks of their cars from the second story. Uh, you know, it was just like chaos, everybody moving out and people carting computers down the stairs. Yeah. Uh, Chris Kane, one of the salespeople, I think, uh, he said that's when <laughs> that first magical wave of Silicon Valley ended. There was a shift. The idea that the company was a family disappeared with Atari. Uh, it never existed that the company was a family. That was something they do to, that's something they do to manipulate you yeah they fooled people into thinking it. yeah you know and it, and they were not your family though they were giving you twenty thousand dollars and they mm-hmm. made millions off you yeah you know, they were not your family your boss is not your friend right company's not your friend mm-hmm. um so in 1984 uh warner broke up the atari division uh jack uh tremiel who was the former ceo of commodore came in um to basically do damage control right. so this guy gets a lot of blame for all those firings and stuff like that but mm-hmm. basically he was just trying to like Trying, trying to make sure anything of value could be kept. Yes. Yeah. You know, so uh, they rushed out the 7800, um, cut prices uh, on older stuff, just really tried to stay afloat, mm-hmm. you know, which is basically the best thing you could probably do. Yeah. Like, you know, that's uh, I have some sympathy for that mm-hmm. attitude, even though people did get fired and stuff like, you know, you, you inherit a fire. What are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. You know, try to put it out. Yep. And they tried to innovate. Like they put out new stuff that like wasn't necessarily terrible. It was just not as good as the other things and they couldn't back it up. So like they put out the links, uh, which had problems as a, uh, as a portable system. Um, mm-hmm. you know, terrible battery life. It was not as portable as the Game Boy. Nothing could hope to compete against the Game Boy. Well, um, it, the biggest thing with, for the links was price. Yes. Like the, the, the links came out, um, after the Game Boy. Mm-hmm. Like the Game Boy beat them to market. Yeah. Uh, with the links, the links came out like four months later and was so much more expensive. Um, and that it was also was just kind of out of sync. Like they had done focus testing on the links and kids who they done. You you can't fool a 13 year old, but a 13 year old can fool you Yeah, because they, the kids were saying they wanted a big handheld system. Mm-hmm. Like the original links was mostly air. Yep. <laughs> inside it. Uh, you know, they re- later remixed it to like the links portable or whatever like a mm-hmm. small links yeah but all these things that we associate with the links sucking ass uh were like market testing mm-hmm. or focus groups yeah 
you know, uh, and just also the fact that, hey, this costs twice as much as the Game Boy. Mm-hmm. It's bigger and uglier and it doesn't have good games on it. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> but boy, like the graphics are better. But who gives a shit? Because mm-hmm. you can't play Tetris on it. Instead, you can play Junkyard Dog, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yep. so. Jesus. Uh, they also did uh, the Jaguar, uh, which mm-hmm. had that one good Aliens versus Predator game on it. Um, they marketed that as a 64 bit system, but not necessarily the case or only technically the case. It wasn't enough to, you know, compete in the mid nineties. Um, and by 1996, the entire company was completely dissolved. Atari still exists, um, right now, but as like a name applied to another publisher, like it's a label more than anything. Yeah. They, you know, they, and they would, you know, they'd use that and they published some games I think are cool, right? Mm -hmm. Like Atari published temple of elemental evil. Yeah. Wild. Um, you know, so they're, they're still around, they're still around in those flashback systems. Like they mm-hmm. will never leave our public consciousness. I no, feel like, no. you know, this is, this is something that is woven into not just our culture as people who are professionally concerned with video games, mm-hmm. but, uh, to the culture at large, yeah. like a random assortment of a hundred people you run into in the street mm-hmm. of all ages will have heard of Atari. Yeah. You know, where they may not have heard of a Commodore 64, mm-hmm. you know, or, uh, you know, they it's the same level of cultural saturation as Nintendo, even though they don't have the same current you know, rel- relevance. Right. So, yeah, but the 2600 was in production for 14 years. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some like crazy games you can play that came out in like 19, uh, 1989 that are that, you know, that are on that flashback system that I got. Mm-hmm. Uh, super interesting. Um, and even still today, like when you go around these, um, when you go around those retro game expos, you can see people doing like homebrew games. Like here's a homebrew Sonic the Hedgehog game for the Atari 2600. Uh, people are doing cool and like interesting stuff with it. And just new games. Yeah. Like people are making new properties. You'll go to these expos and you'll see a booth set up with like art and you're like, oh, someone's promoting a game. And then you look and just a big stack of 2600 cards. Mm Mm-hmm. That they made and they've made a new 2600 game. Yeah. Um, you know, it's neat. Yeah. It is really cool. Like it is, you know, this is something that like I, I was thinking about uh, fandom of video games as an axis from intellectual to experiential, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, are you interested in games? Like, or do you think that the history and the concept of a game is interesting in and of itself? Or is your joy in the fun that you get from playing a video game? Mm-hmm. And Atari has something to offer for both, but it has way more to offer for the former. Yeah. Now, like, I think that if you are at all interested in games, uh, this kind of shit is the history of games. And it, mm-hmm. it applies. And similar problems happen now. Yeah. With this uh, this kind of uh, reach exceeding its grasp, you still get the same kind of triumphs and tragedies. You know, people innovating and doing really neat stuff. You still get uh, companies putting profits before human life uh, in a way that will ultimately bite them in the ass. Yeah. Um, you see markets getting saturated in a way that like negatively affects, you know, things you see weird, you know, companies making big, dumb decisions on a lark, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and failing for it, not failing as catastrophically, Yeah. but you know, still failing. Right. Right. Like, you know, Nintendo came and took this torch as the torchbearer for video games after this, but it's not like Nintendo didn't do a bunch of fuck ups. Mm-hmm. You know, Nintendo's made Virtual a lot Boy. of like Virtual Boy, Wii U made a bunch of Atari style mistakes. Yeah. You know, uh, in terms of that, not with the same kind of evil motivations, but still mm-hmm. fuck ups. Yeah. 
like learning from the the industry's fuck ups is important. Yeah, it's a huge cautionary tale. Like from an experiential basis, I think that you know something that I fall into when I mess around with you know that flashback system, or even when I'm just you know poking around at ROMs trying to you know think of something you know if I want to you know if I, <laughs> looking for something must cover for abject suffering. Um, mm -hmm. you know, is like you're gonna graze. Right. Like none of these are engrossing, really, that you're going to be playing them for more than a few minutes at a time, especially when you have the entire world of these, you know, Atari 2600 games laid out for you. Um, yeah. You're going to poke around until you see something that is cool or interesting. And, you know, I can't blame somebody for, like, not having a huge attention span for it um, because that's just kind of the way you're going to get the most out of this, I think, because yeah. of how limited the products are. Had to focus a little bit. It, yeah. it it has such the the uh, arcade cadence. Yeah, to me. So it's like if you can enjoy going into a classic arcade and throwing a couple quarters into Pac Man, you can enjoy playing some time with it with the Atari. Mm -hmm. And that was their goal. Yep. You know, was to make bring that experience home, and I think they did it. Mm -hmm. And now video games, like in large part because of innovators like Adventure and Pitfall, are a different kind of experience. Yeah. A solitary, a um, little bit more like <clears throat> cerebral and deeper experience. Yeah. You know, but there's room for both mm -hmm. room for all so. of it, you know, and there's, there's stuff, you know, like, I don't know, super hexagon, <laughs> sure, <laughs> super kind of hexagon devil daggers. Like there's ways to do this in a, you know, super hexagon. It, it could not have been an Atari game. No, no, but there is some, all the Kavanaugh games like mm -hmm. VVV, you know, have uh, their roots in these very old games with these intense constraints. Yes. You know, so it's neat. Yeah, I'm really happy to have taken the time to go and do this, you know, to play these games and to do the research. These special mm -hmm. topics episodes are fun, although they are very labor intensive. Extremely labor intensive. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, this was meant to be a very light episode for me in terms of preparation and was not. No. no. Yeah. So that's okay. Mm -hmm. No. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Doug. Um, so if you have anything to say, if you have, uh, Atari memories, I did like on Twitter, I was just like, what's your favorite 2600 game? Mm -hmm. Just mostly cause I wanted to see how many people would respond. Yeah. yeah. You know, a, a lot of the same, uh, you know, a lot of the usual suspects mm -hmm. showed up like lots of Yars revenge, lots of missile command and stuff. Yeah. But a lot of people were like, Hey, this game is rad. Mm -hmm. Like tons of people. Like I got, let me look here. So 43 people, you know, it's nice. been less than a day that that's been up and 43 people are like, here's my favorite. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people were way, way into it. So. You know, it's neat. Yeah. Um, the uh, If you have anything to say about Atari, if you have stories about those games, mm -hmm. um, or if you have things to say about Death of the Outsider or XCOM Enemy Within with the Enemy Unknown expansion, mm -hmm. go to duckfeed.tv slash contact. Yes. Um, if you have thoughts about the games that we're going to be covering in March, uh, do likewise. Uh, the deadline for any of those is the 15th of the uh, of the month where we cover them. Uh, March's games, for people who didn't listen to the dispatch, uh, are Valdis Story, uh, which is a, an indie PC Metroidvania, um, Axiom Verge, which is an indie PC the Metroid. PC Metroidvania. <laughs> yeah. Metroid. Uh, and then um, uh, the, the premium episode for, for March is going to be uh, The Legend of Zelda the ocarina of time mm -hmm. the one the game about the ocarina yes definitely my top 10 games about ocarinas yeah <laughs> top 15 games about weird flutes yeah yeah and when it comes to flutes yeah it's, it's way it's way better than super fifeo brothers yeah. um <laughs> <laughs> that was dumb yeah. <laughs> like i'm tired <laughs> it's, it feels like it's been a really long recording session uh but it's <laughs> lots of talking yeah um, <laughs> yeah. And then ratings reviews, uh, on Apple podcast and going to patreon.com slash Doug feed TV. Um, that is how Doug, 
uh, sponsor this episode. Mm-hmm. That is how you get to ask questions for our dispatches. That is how you get to vote in abject suffering polls. You get a lot. Yeah. Uh, join us. Please do. Um, also join us. Uh, you know, this is apropos of talking about the Atari. We're going to be at the uh, Midwest Gaming Classic on April the 3rd and 4th. Uh, that mm-hmm. is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're going to be uh, at a table and doing a panel with the Retronauts. Yep, uh, we're we're teaming up with the Retronauts. It's a we're basically uh, joining them yeah. for their regularly regularly scheduled content. Uh, we're going to be talking about celebrity appearances in games. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's going to be really fun. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so join us there. Come uh, come hang out. Uh, we will be nice, and we'll have buttons and stuff to to give you. Yeah. So, um, and I think that's probably about it. Think so. Yeah. So uh, thanks for listening. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. And uh, until next time, what should they watch out for, Cole? Uh, they should watch out for Yar. He's back yeah. for vengeance. And cocaine. <laughs> Who gave Yar cocaine? <laughs>